You better be listening to Slezoids or I must break you. Now you understand the conditions of your parole. I gotta get along with you or you're gonna send me back to jail. You're on parole? I figure I served my time and I just earned a little bit of freedom. My friend, I see that you're gonna force me to deal with you. All I wanna do is get a job. Son, you got a panty on your head. Just drive fast, kid. Turn to the right! The first time I met Ed was in the county lockup in Tempe, Arizona. You're a flower, you are. A day I'll never forget. I do. You bet I do. Okay, then. My lawless years were behind me. Our child-rearing years lay ahead. But... <laughs> Biology conspired to keep us childless. You go right back up there and get me a toddler. I need a baby hide. I got more than I can handle. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon... Next week, we are going adventure mode, and prepare yourselves because it's probably going to be another three-hour episode, so stay tuned. Join the sleaze. That's right, and we decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an on-air shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been cataloging for five to six years now. There's like 140-plus bonus episodes, as well as our bonus transmission series, where there's another 40 coming on, 50 of where we talk about new release genre films, and there are some exciting ones uh, on the horizon at the moment. People are talking about the duel between Mr. Tom Cruise and Mr. Christopher Nolan. We are certainly going to be weighing in on that at a certain point uh, this year. Oh yeah, it's um, the duel of the IMAX screens, is that right? That's right, who's <laughs> going to win out? Uh, Patreon.com slash podcast for anyone who is interested in any of that, and speaking of which, uh, we did have quite a few people make the jump this week, so I'm going to give them their shoutouts here. We had uh, Logan Kirk sign up, Marin, uh, Martin Garrison, uh, Yim- Yimishow, uh, Michael Bortnick, uh, Tom Tuna. Is that the Tom Tuna? I don't know if that, we'll have to find that out. Talk to us later after the show, buddy. Um, Jeremy Hawkins, who signed up for an entire year of the show at a little bit of a reduced rate monthly. That is something that uh, anyone can do uh, if they're interested. We had Liam Doherty sign up, Nick Turner, uh, Christian Ornelas, um, Scrolling, Laureline, uh, Laura Tullius, uh, Robbie Wilston, Johnny Prendato, Caden, uh, Brendan Murray, Jacob McLaughlin, Derek E., Joe Bjol, uh, Dan, Alex Turner, uh, Riley O'Donnell, and last but not least, Joe Morris. So thanks to all of you folks for signing up over on the Patreon. We appreciate the support and hope you're enjoying all of those bonus episodes. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, that is the uh, one plug for the week. The other week, uh, the other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you were listening on either one of those platforms, and I see the stats, I can see you right now listening on both those platforms. Give us a good old rating and review over there. It helps us climb the ranks and find new listeners. We appreciate that support as well. And the very last plug, as always, is merch. If you like the poster art that based out of Toronto horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that put on basically anything that you can think of. And you freaks have thought of a lot of things. People have bought pillows. People have bought notebooks. People have bought hoodies. Uh, If that is of any interest to you, there is a link in the uh, description as well as over at sleezoidspodcast.com. Uh, But that is it for the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, uh, as always, my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks over on the main feed uh, would have heard from us, and we would have had a special guest, special returning guest, uh, Mr. Toronto's own Will Sloan of the Important Cinema Club and the Michael and Us podcast, the self-proclaimed king of Toronto, uh, coming back on the show to, of course, bring us the sleaziest, most underseen movies we ever talk about uh, and the most pornographic films we ever talk about on this podcast. Uh, But specifically, we were talking about the pornographic films of a director maybe people don't know made pornos, Uh, Mr. (laughs) Ed Wood of Glenn or Glenda, Plan 9 from Outer Space fame. Uh, Uh, The uh, Tim Burton movie kind of ends in a place where, you know, very conveniently not to show you his uh, very drunken, depressed, uh, alcoholic 70s era where he was just shooting softcore pornos and writing all kinds of novels uh, that had uh, erotic horror bents to them. So we We talked about with Will. But we, we do. Let's get, let's get that follow up. It would be really bleak and dark, though. <laughs> I, I understand why they, you know, they wanted to leave that movie a little hopeful about the weirdos who yeah. get their friends together to make movies. They didn't want to be like, oh, and then, by the way, you die of a heart attack because you <laughs> because drank yourself to death. And you're poor. Yeah. And your wife didn't know it. And you were just in the other room dying. And anyway, uh, we didn't get into <laughs> too much of that. But we did talk about with Will uh, Ed Wood's goofy sexploitation noir parody film, Take It Out in Trade from 1970 which was a lot of fun and then we paired it with his very bizarre unfinished orgy horror film dream uh the only house in town from 1971 which was was just 50 minutes of like an orgy that looked like snuff footage so thanks to will sloan for that one yeah and you can actually hear like ed wood calling out directions it's hilarious yeah so if you uh, are interested in that episode again that was uh two weeks ago over on the main feed uh, but then uh, last week over on uh, the Patreon uh, for the uh, patrons exclusively, uh, we got the sledgehammers out and the hard-boiled eggs out, and we talked about some Southern American prison dramas that were based on books that were written by war veterans who actually ended up in chain gangs. And they may be like, that's really specific for a double feature, but <laughs> if there are two films that meet that criteria. Uh, we talked about uh, I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang by Mervyn Leroy, starring Paul Muni of Scarface fame, which was one of those like 1930s studio uh, bleak pre-code like depression era crime saga films and and a film that actually exposed the public to the cruel conditions of chain gangs in the 1930s and actually was politically used as a tool to abolish them by the time they got around to the 1940s or at least, you know, very much hinder what they were uh, able to do to prisoners because obviously if they had been completely abolished, the existence of 
Cool Hand Luke, which was the sequel film or the follow up yeah. film, uh, d- you know, wouldn't wouldn't have existed. That one directed by Stuart Rosenberg and more one of those like late 60s new Hollywood hangout character studies, but with a God tier of Paul Newman performance to uh, hang it all on. As we said on that episode, so uh, destroying the American prison system with the power of swag. Yeah, it's 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 unreal. Both both of those movies are just unbelievable bangers. I think I fived both of them. Uh, so we were yep. we were gushing the entire time. So je- definitely check out that episode. Yeah, that was last week over on the Patreon for anyone uh, interested in that. Uh, but moving on to this week, we have a very special uh, guest joining us for the uh, first time. He's been a longtime Twitter mutual and a uh, poster who I've always found very, very funny and is also uh, working on some of the things that you might be enjoying watching right now. This guy is a crew member. He's worked on Better Call Saul. He was most recently on the set of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, and he's also informed us that he's on some secret shit. He's not allowed to talk about yet uh but that guest is wyatt duncan wyatt how you doing i'm doing great thank you guys what a what an introduction i i have to uh ride the 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 uh, coattails of christopher nolan it's amazing i know i mean i i i couldn't quite get in the uh, garfield neon genesis t-shirt uh debacle that you found yourself in but i, I feel uh, like if it's it, a whole nother thing <laughs> If anyone wants to follow Wyatt on Twitter after the fact, you can definitely learn all kinds of uh, funny lore about his uh, time in in the Garfield uh, fandom. And uh, <laughs> but but yeah, also can, can we ask up front? Did Christopher Nolan direct Oppenheimer in first person? This is what the talk of the town right now. <laughs> uh, I you know I I think people need to see the movie to find out. But <laughs> I, I will say uh, if he were to do so, it would make set a uh, a very interesting experience for everybody who was working on it and um yeah and and i i do have to say one thing too um uh, i am very curious and and by now i don't know this but once the movie does come out there is a chance i might be in one one shot of oppenheimer Ooh, so, that's okay awesome. Keep your eyes peeled if you go to see that big IMAX 70 millimeter screening, you know? I am. I'll be there. I'll be looking for you. Please Uh, do. (laughs) But yeah, Wyatt, thanks so much for for joining us. Obviously, we we have the uh, guests bring the double features uh, with them, and we kind of set you up a little bit last week when we were talking about some some prison films. But maybe talk about the two films that you brought with you this week, why you paired them together, and this crazy story of how you maybe pitched this to me like four or five years ago, and we're just getting around (laughs) to it now. Sure thing. Um, the films I pitched uh, were Straight Time and Raising Arizona. Um, and I, I definitely saw Raising Arizona like as a kid. And um, it, w- it was like one of my favorite movies. It was, it was probably my first Coen Brothers movie I've, I have ever seen. Um, and when I got around to watching Straight Time, maybe like six or seven years ago, I was watching it and I was thinking to myself, this is like if Raising Arizona wasn't a Looney Tunes cartoon. Like, like thematically, <laughs> yeah. this is this is hitting the same beats that Raising Arizona did, but it just happens to be like a, a gritty '70s crime film, and it's amazing. Um, and uh, I'm I'm just really attracted to those guys who you know find their way in and out of prison, and and they're trying to run straight, and they're just they just keep falling, they just keep having a hard time doing it, and I feel like that goes for both Nicolas Cage and Dustin Hoffman and they they pull that off so well 
And uh, yeah, they're two of my favorites, and I'm, I'm so excited to talk about them. Um, I, I remember Josh tweeted about this. God, I want to say it was definitely pre-COVID. It was probably like 2018 or 2019 or something. Mm-hmm. And he just, he brought it out there, and he was like, hey, if anybody has any cool double features that we can do for Sleazoids, let me know. And um, I, I told him, I'm like, yo, you do straight time in Raising Arizona. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. That sounds great. Well, we'll look into that. <laughs> and then I want to say like four months ago, he... <laughs> He finally responded and he told me, he's like, Hey, do you still want to do that thing from like five years ago? And I'm like, hell yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> and it was, li- it, it was literally because I s- had not heard of straight time when you had said it. And it, it doesn't seem like very many people had actually heard of straight time when you had said it, that there's been a kind of Warner archive Blu-ray release of it that has kind of put it on the map for a lot of people. And uh, people have been seeing it. And that restoration that they did is what I got the chance to see in the theater uh, about a year ago. And that was around the time that I went to do why do I remember someone telling, recommending me this movie? And this movie is amazing. So I, either way, the, the the paper, it stuck in my brain. There was a part of my brain that was like, there's a cool guy named Wyatt, and he told you that you should watch Straight Time. And now this episode has been born. So I'm really excited about it. Yeah. I, well, I, I know when I first saw Straight Time, it, it was definitely on like some sketchy Russian website or something. It was definitely some illegal thing that I had to seek out and find. And so uh, I, I was really happy when I saw that there were screenings coming out and the Warner restoration that happened. So I'm, I'm just happy you're able to finally see it and be, it be exposed to how cool it is. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, we're definitely going to be talking about two very different approaches to the uh, sad daily realities of, of X cons in, in, in neo-noir cinema. Uh, so as, as uh, Wyatt mentioned, we're going to be doing uh, Ulu Grosbard's very methodical and depressing straight time from 1978, very uh, starring vehicle for Dustin Hoffman who wanted to, as realistically and accurately depict the lifetime criminal mindset and the tragic consequences of that lifestyle. And then we're going to be following that up with the Coen brothers doing a more lighthearted and absurdist, but still quite empathetic Looney Tune depiction, uh, basically a decade later in Raising Arizona with uh, Nick Cage and Holly Hunter. Which kind of works uh, out, and, too, because uh, even the Coen brothers were like, I think they were coming off Blood Simple, and they said they wanted to go a little more optimistic. So I like that we have the same yeah. kind of contrast going on right now (laughs) yeah exactly it makes perfect sense so uh that being said i think uh we're gonna jump right into it here let's kick things off let's start uh uh things off with straight time knocking that door put you in jail straight time dustin hoffman what are you doing Straight time. It's the time it takes for a man to lose or win. All right, we are talking Straight Time, the 1978 American neo-noir prison drama directed by one Ulu Grosbard, starring Dustin Hoffman and written by a uh, trio of Alvin Sargent, Jeffrey Bohm, and Ed Bunker with a little bit of an uncredited rewrite from Michael Mann, which we will also get into. But based on the uh, novel by also Ed Bunker, No Beast So Fierce. Um, this is uh, this is a pretty amazing movie. The, the mm. place I think I want to start with is probably uh, Hoffman and Ed Bunker, who over the course of this film basically became really good friends. And Dustin Hoffman, who was just like 
hot off one of the hardest decades probably any actor had ever had with The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, Straw Dogs, All the President's Men, and that's not even all of them, like just an insane run. Um, Midnight Cowboy definitely is like the performance of his that I think reminds me the most of this movie. Uh, Not necessarily in terms of like the cadence because he's a little bit more of an explosive character uh, in in that, Um, whereas there is a little bit more control to his character in, in this, but just in the sense of that it's like sort of about uh, kind of low-level hustling a little bit and these two dudes who kind of live on the streets of New York City and there's a certain level of like lonely sort of like woundedness and you know desperate dreaming to a film like that and and Hoffman you know has a preference I think for kind of playing rebellious assholishness streaks <laughs> in, in, in his characters and I've always found you know he's it's always made characters that he plays a little bit more interesting and, and and complex whether it's like the awkward stammering he does in something like The Graduate or just like the pure repressed ugliness of, of something like Straw Dogs as well he's, he's a very magnetic performer and from what I understand he fought very very hard to get this book adapted because he found it uh, in it basically soon after it was published Published, Ulu Grosbard, who was a friend of his, uh, ended up sending it to him. And Dustin Hoffman intended to direct this himself because he loved the character, he loved the material, and he went to actually see Ed Bunker while he was still in prison. This is how much he was like, you know, he he was like, I need to, you to know how interested I am in this material. And the commentary he told this amazing story about like Ed Bunker the first time he walked him through the decision making in like in a bank robbery, and he was like, you know, like let's say you yell for everyone to get down but one person doesn't and it's like a guard and let's say like you shoot but you know you don't you don't even shoot to hit him just scare him or something but the bullet goes through the window and it like hits a mother outside or something like that he's like Mm -hmm. you have to live with that and mom should know better than to walk with kids in front of banks and (laughs) and and he, he said this to him and dustin hoffman was like Dude, this level of rationalization, he said it gave him goosebumps. So he was like, I need to fucking play a guy like this. And so there was like no better option than Ed Bunker, who himself was like this rebellious kid born into a tumultuous, alcoholic and violent home life. You know, one where he was breaking up fights, you know, between his parents at the age of like 11. And he spent most of his early teenage years in the system, in boarding houses, foster homes, eventually in prison for robbing banks and 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 dealing drugs eventually going straight himself in 1975 and as we see in this film turning those experiences into a very authentic depiction of criminal psychology and and prison life and the complicated relationships to violence and authority that you know ex-cons have on on the outside and where they are still frequently mistreated and ostracized and it just creates this cycle of poverty and punishment that we talked a lot about on i am a fugitive from a chain gang last week yeah um like even in the beginning here his his character has essentially nothing like even when he gets out you know they have this awesome um scene just in the very beginning where he gets out of prison and he's with two other men and they actually have like family members waiting for them and um you know someone station wagons yeah yeah something some something to have a connection to the outside and it seems the moment that that max gets out he just wanders aimlessly and the first thing that he can think of is getting a hot dog with everything on it you know which in a sense that would be probably just just uh amazing after time spent in prison but there, there's this it's like in his eyes the way that dustin uh, acts it out there's just it's he's such a lost person at that point um there there seems to be like no excitement on his face but no sadness either um it, it, there just doesn't seem to be any he doesn't seem to have any inner guidance whatsoever after he's out 
Um, and, you know, of course, we'll get into it, but, like, with Emmett Walsh's character, that doesn't help at all. Nothing, nothing on the outside is helping as well, so. Yeah. No, I it, think that... It, it, well, oh, I just want to say, too, that, like, almost immediately, I don't know how long, much, like, how long into the movie this happens. It feels like 10 minutes in, and it's, like, this, like, long, drawn-out sequence of Dustin Hoffman coming out of prison. You know, he's, he's like, on the bus, walking down the street, um, like, just trying to, you know, make his way into the city, into this uh, this area that he's supposed to be in. And I want to say, like, yeah, like, almost right after that, like, little montage sequence with the opening credits, uh, it's, like, he goes to visit, visit M. Emmett Walsh, and then M. Emmett Walsh just immediately immediately starts like grilling him about uh, like why didn't you do this why didn't you go to the halfway house like you were supposed to do this you're supposed to do that mm-hmm. and it's like like right away you you get it like oh my god this guy like you know everybody is like pushing him down and he just got out of prison like the like the night before like not even yeah. 24 hours out in the open world and his parole officers are already like getting on his ass about everything and it's like jesus christ and and it, and it made such an effort to show that like you know he doesn't have money he barely has any contact he has no job and he's just like trying to find himself and he like goes to like a hotel or something and just, is just kind of like you know exploring the city a little bit and uh his parole officer's like no you can't be doing that he's like he's like yeah man he 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 literally <laughs> just wants to sprawl out on like the la benches and check into his crummy motel and his like 670 stash and disco shirts every outfit he wears in this is incredible by the way I just, <laughs> yeah. you know i want to that, that was my first note for sure. I, <laughs> Yeah, yes. I, I, I immediately I was like, I would like to buy the entire collection if if it's available um, <laughs> yeah. from from the the Max Dembo collection. But um, <laughs> he he, he I, I like that it is like a, just a small gesture of like I would just like to not go to a halfway house and not be told when to go to bed. I would yeah. like to be able to you know eat a hot dog, lay down in the city. I'd like to be able to make some choices. And his very cruel and unhelpful parole officer, as we mentioned, played by Emmett Walsh, his name is. Uh, Earl Frank and we've talked about Emma Walsh a couple times but amazing actor also in Blood Simple for the Coens where he's awesome Blade Runner he's great um, and this character he makes an really just kind of Arizona, I think later too. If I'm not mistaken, <laughs> he does too. Yeah, yeah as the <laughs> so there's some connective tissues. The Emmett, Emmett Walsh uh, double feature, um, but the but he he very much has this kind of smirking yes. naturalistic attitude about how much kind of casual power he has over uh, Max Dembo. The way and he, he, talks he treats him Max. like this contemptuous child, right? That he needs mm-hmm. to like punish and enforce, you know, petty rules until he's just completely humiliated and miserable. Yeah, he has this like um almost like a like a fake big brother act that he's doing. Like he's like doing it for his for the better of Max and um he does it almost with a like you said a smirk, a smile on his face. He's he's like happy to do all of these things and he tries to paint it as if it's helping Max um and you know building character or whatever it is or it's for his own good and and he even you know the the things that he does uh, throughout we'll get into more detail like he kind of paints it like um uh like he's doing him a favor like there's an instance where um, he's like, you know, I could have brought you back to prison for a few years, but I only did it for a couple days because I really care about you, <laughs> like that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and I just, I love the way that Emmett plays this. It's, it's so, it, it, you understand how it could just get under your skin that much more. It's not just cruel, but he's like having a good time doing it. He's and pretending he's yeah. an equal, that he's yes. friendly with you. Yeah. And, and I remember so reading that Ulu. 
Ulu Grosbard, the Belgian filmmaker who who ended up directing the film and taking over for Hoffman when he kind of felt that maybe he was a little in over his head trying to make it his directorial debut or whatever he was doing. Mm. Um, uh, I, I this great interview um, with with him where he basically said that when Emmett Walsh came in on the first day for that first scene, which was the first thing they shot with him, um, that he just came in really really cartoonish. That he almost did it like he was doing it like the a really cruel like Cohen's character or something mm-hmm. like that, and he was okay. playing it over the top. and And he said they had to do like thirty takes where he eventually was like, "Dude, I need you to play it more like a real dude who would piss you the fuck off in your life. Yeah. Like it's a very mm-hmm. different kind of character. Like, I, like we we get that it's almost like not the behavior that he's th- pissing you off. Like it, it's this it's this thing that you almost would." You know, it's like when people do something and they do it so subtly that if you were to call them out, you, you, they could gaslight you and like say you're being the one that's yeah, weird. Yeah, exactly. He's, he's kind of pulling that move a little bit. But because I, because he's like the character isn't cartoonishly cruel, even though he technically is. It's kind of like the rules themselves are or right. like yeah. things that he's being totally. asked to enforce. It's just and like, his job, you know. Exactly. And and I think part of the genius, too, of the casting of M.M.O. Walsh in that, though, is that he, like him as an actor, like as a figure, as this like kind of person, he, he's not really like an authority figure. And so by having M.M.O. Walsh be that guy, he, he almost is like a little pathetic in the way that he's doing it like he's mm-hmm. like so desperate to be like the cool kid or like the, the authority guy wearing the big pants or anything that like mm-hmm. he just comes off like this like sweaty like uh, desperate kind of mess and and I like that a lot because I, I think in a, in a much lesser movie they would have the parole officer be like the big baddie who you know is like I, I don't know very stern and very uh, sure and mm-hmm. everything that he does and you know he probably goes home and like beats his wife and shit but like MMO Walsh is like he's like this like geeky kid who Who's like in with the principal or something at, at your high school? You <laughs> yeah, know? He's, he's like totally. just like a dork, and it sucks that he's monitor. the one who's telling you what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You wonder, you understand why he's like, you know, he's he's pissed off that he has to be so. He's just like, look, man. I, you know, I just want a decent job. I want a decent place to live. I want somebody to love me. I want some clothes on my back. I want some self-respect. And he's like, I got to go to this fucking guy to get this shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. what the fuck? And the thing is, is that he, he even, like, does the deal. He says, if you can find a job at the end of the week and find another place, then, you know, you're good in my book. Uh, and then he does that. And then because of, you know, the, the, um, the scene with uh, Willie, which we'll get to with uh, Gary Busey, um, he starts to think that he's doing drugs and then puts him right back into the system, which causes him to lose the job that he just got, which was part of the deal to stay outside and, you know, remain yeah. free. Um, so it's, it, it just yeah, feels and like... And also just like flexing his power, which was something that yeah. Bunker like wrote about a lot in a lot of his, his, his books, because he was basically like just the way that... You know, uh, you know the 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 way that some of these men are treated and the vicious cycle that you know it is is born from it. Like it is kind of illogical. It is just like straight up cruelty. And when you get sucked in as a kid and you experience that abuse, you just you come out a kind of a worse, harder person in order to survive it, in order to not be broken by it a little bit. And what we were talking a little bit with uh, Cool cool Hand Luke and the kind of techniques that those guys kind of came up with. And, you know, Ed, 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 for for Ed Bunker, this was a case of like, look, you it's, it's hard not to become a cynical person when you 
see and experience these kinds of things that you do. But the thing that I'm kind of impressed by with this film is that, you know, despite obviously the the very harsh sort of like bleakness of a statement like that and of Ed Bunker's um, perspective, there is, you know, there's a lot of sensitivity to this. There's a lot of, um, you know, like emotionality to it. Like you could, it's not like Ed Bunker made the film and Ed Bunker was like, you know, <laughs> I'm going to make this like the, the cruelest possible movie. And it, it, this, it, he did go to uh, Michael Mann. Uh, who probably needs to come up at some point in this conversation uh, just because he did an uncredited rewrite on this film. He actually, from what it sounds like, he kind of co-wrote it with Bunker at a certain point. Um, And it was Ulu Grosbard who actually brought in the writers to do a last-minute rewrite who ended up getting full credit on the film and eradicating man's credit on the film. But there is so much of man in this and what would functionally be like a test run for what what feels like thief Mm -hmm. to me uh all like just all over um this thing and it would start a relationship between michael mann and ed bunker that would result in john voight basically playing ed bunker in in heat if you were ever wondering like why Mm. does john voight have that crazy facial hair and why does he kind (laughs) of look like mr blue in reservoir dogs the answer is because john voight was literally just playing no shit is that is that where that came from that's amazing yes i didn't know that (laughs) So if you're ever if you're ever watching Heat again and you're having that uh, that thought in your head of like what a weird choice for facial hair, this is a specific look. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, they were like, we gotta we we gotta have it be. be uh, Ed Ed Bunker him himself, and and there is that kind of tragic sensibility to it, and also that you know that uh, methodical aspect to it, where the, you know it's a very intelligent character. They're in a very fatalistic world. There's a sort of humanity and existentialism um, to that, and. Um, what kind of differentiates this, I guess you could say from man is that instead of kind of going into the more, you know, sort of impressionistic style qualities that he had, especially, you know, through, through the eighties, his films are practically, I mean, Manhunter has uh, sections of it that are basically just music videos. Um, this has more of that seventies grit to it as uh, Wyatt was kind of talking about where it has more of that, uh, bluntness. It's uh, shot by the guy who shot the French connection and taking a Pelham one, two, three for anyone Mm -hmm. who is like, Oh, that might put it in a little bit of, you know, context. It has a more grimy economy to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, it, 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 it does kind of suit this, uh, you know, tough, hard boiled milieu that they're coming at where it is this very sort of matter of fact version of like an LA neo noir kind of vibe where it has this lived in sort of authentic detail and reality to it of a guy who has maybe really robbed banks on these streets, has maybe thought about what tools to bring, which alleys that he might seek it, uh, sneak into, you know, actually experience the humiliating conditioning of the prison system and how untenable navigating normal relationships while doing this kind of line of line of work is like it's just it, it it's pretty amazing how well this captures that you know that criminal mindset in the world they kind of navigate through and the you know the panicked desperation of it financially and and emotionally and you know just everything about it and, and yeah. one thing I wanted to say too, though, is that I think uh, going back to the casting is that the casting of Dustin Hoffman in this role, I think, really like solidifies the fact that you kind of you want to see this guy succeed. Like he he, there's like this sensitivity with Dustin Hoffman that doesn't exist with some of those like you know leading men of the '70s. I feel like where he he still has that like kind of like 
softness about him, even though he, cl- he clearly has seen some shit and he, he, you know, he's like gone through a lot. Um, but like, there's a scene where he's talking with, uh, what was her name? Teresa Russell. Um, he's talking with her in the beginning and like, they're like kind of flirting with each other and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, affable and likable. And, and you can tell that, you know, he, he wants to reform and have, and have this better life. It's not bullshit what he's saying. And yeah, but the, the, the thing that he does it in the most Michael Mann way possible though, where it's like, you know, he's trying trying to romance her with like tales from the joint and like the sort of like <laughs> yeah, the no. macho poetry of him where he's like, you know, he's like, you know, the rules aren't defined out here. Uh, like they are on the inside, you know, where you, you know, you live by the rules or you die. You can get killed with the, did you know you can get killed with the sharp end of a spoon? You know, someone can throw a can of gas or a match in your bunk and then you're torch. And you know, that's the reality you're living yeah. with 24 hours a day. And she's just like, Jesus Christ. The, like, the, I, yeah. <laughs> the funniest thing, though, is like, uh, yeah, I mean, they had that initial interaction where, you know, he's like talking about, you know, he's he was a former criminal and stuff. And then she agrees to go on a date with him. And then you don't even see anything leading up to the date. It's just hard cut to them at a table. And he's going into like prison life immediately. It's like, Jesus Christ. But it's like, what would he know? This is his life. This this is what he would know. So it, it, it it's it's funny. But I don't know. It's it's goddamn. It's sad, too. I'm like, Jesus, dude. I'm rooting for this guy, and and you're yeah. uh, you, you can't stop talking about the joint and the clink. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, but no, the there there is some sympathy has, baked into it. Has a lot of that kind of um, like cut to the to the very next thing that he's doing, um, like that he previously talked about in the, in the the last scene. There, they, they really do cut like all of the fat, and it makes especially in the second half, it really makes you feel like you're kind of on the run with him in a sense. Like he has to go from event to event, person to person, interaction to interaction. And there's really no time to really sink into it. Um, and I and I felt like they did a really good job pacing it with the editing in that, in that sense. I also just yeah. love this first scene with Jenny because it's clear that it's like the first time that he's been on the outside that he has a connection that isn't to do with his past life she he's being very open about his past and she seems to not care she's even joking about it saying things like uh um, like, how long did you have that position when he says that he was a convict? on? Yeah, she, I, I think she's a little attracted to the kind of soft spoken honesty of, mm-hmm. you know, that he's yeah. admitting to that. He, I just did a six year stretch for burg- burglary. I'm pretty desperate for work right now, but I'm a hard worker and I'm, you know, and I'm willing to work. But I, you know, I, you also have to know that I have some limitations that make it harder to make that assimilation possible. Like, I think one of the ones he mentions is that, you know, he can't have a license. Um, he can't like mm-hmm. flee the state, you know, this kind of stuff. And, you know, it's one of those things where he's kind of like, it also limits the c- jobs that he can get. So there, again, this is part of that cycle. Right. So, yeah. And I think he's just uh, like absolutely smitten by the fact that he can be completely himself in a sense. Um, cause he, he really does, you know, he has to fake it with, uh, Walsh or Frank, uh, um, even with, uh, his, his supposed friends like Willie and, and his wife, um, he, he's, kind of has to still lie and and go under uh, or over um, Willie's wife's back by, you know, because he's still a drug addict and he can't let him let her know. But she's also blaming him and thinking that uh, that he's going to get Willie in trouble, even though it seems to be quite the opposite. Um, He just doesn't seem to have any real true connection that seems like it could be blissful. (laughs) And with with Jenny, it it definitely is like that spark. And I think that's he just starts to pursue that. totally even though 
there's a lot that interrupts that because of oh yeah he goes pimp mode immediately but. like he's he's like straight up like you know like thanks for getting me this interview like if I go get this job like can I take you out for dinner like after I get the job and and celebrate yeah. like right then and there like he doesn't waste any time it is that uh that time is luck mentality of like this guy he need he has so many lost years he needs to get some kind of <laughs> normalcy if he can hope to achieve it which he does witness a little bit via his friend Willie as Jamie was alluding to played by the uh very young Gary Busey, who we've uh, talked about previously on Point Break, uh, Point Break, and 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 Under Siege, uh, and also his wife Selma, played by a young Kathy Bates, in her first role mm. an entire oh, decade wow. before. I didn't know that. Wow. Uh, misery. So, yeah, this is an incredibly well well cast uh, film. And I really like yeah. that scene with Kathy Bates and uh, Gary Busey because it, he does see a vision of kind of, you know, like modest living that this guy has kind of carved out for himself. And, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, he got out on parole and he got a riveting job and he's just kind of held on to the job and he's got a kid now. And, you know, uh, and even though Busey seems has. Like he has know, kind of a like a brightness to him. Like he picks him up and, he's you know, he's a little chaotic. Like he's throwing the dog in the back and yelling at it and stuff. But. <laughs> There's like a he's got a, a busted a up station energy. wagon. Yeah, yeah, and there's like a friendly energy even as he's pulling up to the house. He's like honking a bunch, like he's home, that kind of thing. Like there's going to mm-hmm, be a yeah. real embrace of family and friendship at first, anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's also actually Gary Busey's kid too, uh, which is funny because they they wanted to get oh, some like back, real right? sort of like naturalistic uh, Im- improv. No, I mean like just genuinely in the scene uh, with oh, him and his, his wife and his kid. Child? That's oh, actually Gary that. Busey's wow. kid. Yeah. yeah, I yeah, and, oh, that's and cool. I, I I have to bring this up because I mean it, it's part of my Twitter thing too. Is uh, this is a mini Christmas with a Crank reunion? If you didn't know, because MMO Walsh oh. and Jake Busey were both in Christmas with the Cranks, and they were in Straight <laughs> there you Time. Go. So I'm just saying, <laughs> I um, love cinematic that you just connection. That as a connection. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> the worst Christmas oh, movie man. ever made. But um, <laughs> I and it, it was a weird thing too that like it kind of alludes to the fact that like. Gary Busey can be kind of violent, you know, that, that, and and then that doesn't really Mm. go anywhere either. Um, Mm -hmm. with his kid where he's like kind of disciplining his kid and it kind of like goes on a little too long and everybody's like, all right, you can chill. You know, it's not that big. (laughs) Yeah. I I think they wanted to hammer home that he still has that like kind of temper that a guy like that, that like maybe put him into the criminal mindset. And, 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 and that's what upsets Kathy Bates, character is his wife where she, she sees it come out and she thinks it comes out because Max is there. And she's like, Max, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you know, like Willie's been doing like really nice lately. And I know that you guys are, friends and you guys clearly like have affection for one another but it's maybe not good for him to see you you know influences and 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 all that kind of stuff and and to just watch the heartbreak on Hoffman's face when he goes from like being in what he felt was this very natural environment of this version Mm -hmm. of domestic normalcy that maybe he could possibly achieve because Mm -hmm. here's a guy who was also in the same circumstances as him who got it and then just once again being treated like how the parole officer treats him like you just like a piece of dirt and he just has to play it cool and he's that, like you know it's no problem i understand I, what you're what you're saying and what and there's what that you mean. sad acceptance of it like he's just kind of he really does feel like a character because we haven't seen the previous times that he's been out but it, it it heavily implies obviously that he's been in and out of the system for so long this this time when you know he, he looks at kathy and she says that to him he just feels defeated he doesn't fight on it at all it's just a really sad, like, oh, you too, huh? 
that sucks. <laughs> Moving on, yeah. I yeah. guess. Yeah. It's it's just yeah it's it's really sad yeah and, and and which ironically as Jamie already pointed out it ends up being the reverse in that really sad scene mm-hmm. where you know Willie goes to Max's room to drop off this like piece of wood beneath his like shitty rickety bed so that he has some support on it and then immediately once they get his bed set up just whips out the heroin <laughs> the spoon yeah the matches yeah. everything and and, and, and Hoffman's Max's face. Yeah, where he's like, yeah. you could get me three years for that. It's so yeah. just like to the point. And that great shot of him watching Willie light the spoon in Ugh, the reflection the of his mirror. like shitty vanity mirror. Ugh. Man, and it's like and, so hard. It's like so heartbreaking too. rewatching this movie and knowing that that like that's the downfall. Like uh, like Gary. That's Busey where it starts. Shooting up is where the entire movie just goes on a downward spiral. It's like, all right, it's never getting it's never getting up again. This is it. <clears throat> yeah, just because he wanted to embrace a friend, and even Willie's face has the like, the, the, he responds with just a sorry, like it, it's like a I'm going to do this. There's nothing that can be done. I I, yeah. I am I do feel bad about it, but I'm not gonna. I'm not going to change right in this moment. Like yeah. it doesn't matter what risk I'm putting. Well, for you. well, well, and this it totally betrays the image of him. He just saw in that family yeah. unit thing, right? Where he's just like, like he Oh, his true nature actually is still kind of there. Maybe, maybe there isn't this, maybe I still am going to, you know, be addicted to whatever it is that I'm actually, you know, kind of involved in and can't stop doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it yeah, does kind of depress him to realize that, you know, Willie didn't actually fully escape. He's still a fucking heroin addict. And obviously that's before it even leads into one of the most effective moments of humiliation and sort of like lack of dignity granted to Max in the entire movie when he goes back into his room and finds Earl already in his room inspecting his his hotel room because he's got the job he's got the room he's totally obeying all of the rules that were laid out in the agreement and Hoffman is framed like shut out of his own room by the door and he asks to ask to come in and Earl is like well of course you know come in it's your room as if he's like that's a crazy question to be asking and being totally personable and friendly and when he finds those matches on the floor that Willie was using obviously assumes Max was doing drugs makes him strip handcuffs him to the bed is inspecting his arms for the you know track marks and and everything and there's like this kid watching in the hall yeah and again he's insisting that this is like all for your own good even when he handcuffs him he's just like this is just for my safety it's just protocol like that kind of thing like it's just we just have to get you tested you know you need to spend a night in la jail lineup yeah and and he says it over and over again too he's like if there's if you have nothing to hide then you have nothing to worry about he says it over and over and over again you're just like you know that that's not true there's the smallest fucking thing that could have like not even been connected to max can get this guy another few years in prison it's just it's it's that smirk man emmett's so good in this it's unbelievable (laughs) yeah and and that whole he's such an (laughs) asshole and that whole assembly line sequence of the way he spends the night in jail like he's like visiting an old friend like he knows all the routines he knows all the checks he's putting his hands up on the glass he's stripping he's getting into like the, the yep he yeah. has the same face he had on when he walked into the city, just lost. But it's like yeah. going back yeah. now to this the other yeah. system that he's aware now of. Now he's like getting sprayed down in the shower, like a, like you know how you would treat like a farm animal or something like that. Yeah. And just all the fellow guys who are just like completely undignified in there and lounging in their cells and everything. And the worst part of it too is that um, I believe he that's when he's supposed to also have the second date with Jenny that he sets up the night after. 
Um, because there's this, uh, great moment in that first date that they have where it's, you know, in, in the, in, in the outside, it's all about, you know, the money in, in your pocket, uh, and, and not like your character or your actions, like, or your honor, like the way it is kind of inside the system where it makes more sense to him. And it's an idea that's like cleverly underlined by the end of the scene when he doesn't have the cash to cover dinner. So she just like hand him cash Mm. under the table to cover it. And then he's like, well, if you pay for it, you're going to let me pay for it, you know, like tomorrow night. And then tomorrow night he's in fucking jail. Because yeah. he, the, because the guy found some matches in his room that he says w- weren't his, which is true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just yeah. it's it's so brutal how like this possible chance at this normal romantic relationship and this normal friendships, these things he's trying to reignite completely, you know, as he's supposed to be. That you would think that when you rehabilitate someone and you send them back in, uh, back out into the world, these are the things you would want them to reestablish. And it's just like no, you can't have those things. We're still going to humiliate you and man that look on Hoffman's face when she comes to uh visit him in jail and oh, he, yeah. you know she she totally sees what he's like when he's been just kind of like beaten and kind of broken in that way and he's just so depressed by that that he didn't want her to see that yeah, yeah she's she literally asks what happened and he's just like I don't know it doesn't matter <laughs> like he's he's completely <laughs> defeated it's like even if um Like, it it could have been absolutely nothing. It could have been him doing something actually against his parole. At this point, he just feels like he was... It was inevitable for him to end up back here, regardless of who he was friends with, who he had in his room. It doesn't matter. It's like, this is just probably my destination it was just, just earl he, throwing his fucking weight around like it was literally like no yeah. matter we were gonna find a way to to do this and i when earl fucking when he does finally sit down with earl and earl's just like cracking jokes like this isn't as severe of a situation for him obviously and he's go you know you're urine tested clean man sorry you got stuck in here for like a couple days or whatever i had my hands full this week and it's the first yeah. time that hoffman kind of pushes him he's like did the phones break down He's like, don't you get sarcastic with me. Like, I'm going to take you back to the halfway house and I could have put you in here for three years because you didn't, you didn't, you know, maybe smoke up, but someone fucking did in your room. And he's just like, all right, well, you're the boss, man. And Hoffman just playing it totally cool and calm until they get to that freeway uh, sequence, (laughs) which in the theater, I watched this in a pretty like full theater of people watching it. People lost their fucking minds when uh, Dustin Hoffman just fucking grabs that wheel in the middle of the freeway and starts screaming you busted me for nothing you motherfucker and starts pulling him over through like six lanes of traffic crossing over the passenger seat and everything it's it's like an insane and dangerous looking bit of filmmaking oh yeah it's pretty wild Oh my God. When I first watched this for the first time, I, I mean, obviously you know that Dustin Hoffman is going to go back to his old ways. I mean, it's pretty clear from like the 20 minute mark or whatever, what's going to happen. But the, the, I just thought it'd be more subtle. <laughs> exactly. You know, like a slow buildup. It's like, nope, he's, he's yeah. just so over. It. He just explodes on the freeway. He starts hitting the shit out of M.M. at Walsh, goes like weaving in and out of traffic, it swords <laughs> off to the side. And then from that point on, you're like, oh my God, this is it. He's, he's done. Like he, yeah, he made his thing. decision. The whole, right there. the whole movie has to instantly change. Like, and, and this is really where I was like, I was already into it, but th- this is where it really started to intrigue me in a way that I didn't know what was going to happen next. Cause I thought this movie was going to be more about just the entire like 
rehabilitation process and him going in and out of the system and all of that. But for him to make halfway through like the conscious decision to just go completely against it and be like, no, I'm a bank robber again. <laughs> um, yeah, man. Was he tried, he really tried the, the clean way. He tried playing by the rules of the straight life and he, yeah. you know, he still got, he still got punished for it. So this now he's, it. you know, he's got to, he's got to go back into the crime life, the, the LA underworld where he actually has more power, which is why I love that that sequence ends with him handcuffing him to the chain link divider fence in the middle of the freeway, pulling his pants down to cathartically humiliate him and like steal some of his power away. And Hoffman said this was a moment he actually came up with in the writing himself because he just based on childhood bullying. He was like, what would be like the way that you go? And he's like, I didn't want to just like beat him up. Like that's how yeah. any fucking guy would, would do it. He's like, no, 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 this is like a power thing. And it's a display of power thing, the way that Earl was treating him. And, you know, how do you reverse something like that? So it's a funny little moment that like it really does make clear what this has been about for, for him. And yeah, speaking to your point, Jamie. The structure is a tiny bit uh, un unconventional in in the sense that like you are right in terms of like a fatalistic sense that you know where I think this is heading early on, but I don't yeah, think I fully expected to say otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just fully I didn't expect like the unforgiven structure of it, where it's like a man has been mm -hmm. reformed kind of already, or at least in the case here, he's he's putting in the effort. You know, he does genuinely want to try this out. And then you just get to very sadly see him slip back into the old ways, go back into the bad habits and the bleak decision making due to the kind of unjust nature of these forces ar around him. You see the ugly dark side come out, but you're already sympathetic to him, which has always been. So I j actually just rewatched and Unforgiven on the big screen recently, too. And that was something I you know, find so complicated about that movie is that that's not the dude that he is for the whole movie you're like he's totally changed and every time someone talks about him he's like yeah that guy like murdered kids and women by the way <laughs> and then at the very end you see the version of him that is scary and would do those kinds of things but by the time you're there you're already just so invested in this guy and you're you know that actually does have a complicated feeling where you're like this guy is a monster but on some level you know he was made in into this or he was forced yeah. into this in in, yeah. in in other ways and I think this has a kind of similar effect yeah it's also yeah. interesting that he decides to make that decision because he's saving willie in a sense who fucked him over uh like there is something <laughs> about his character to say like frank is essentially going just tell me who did the heroin and like you know it's gonna be all it's gonna be all good don't worry like he even tries to do the whole friend thing where he's like you can trust me and you're like at this point man come on don't even try to pull this card that's ridiculous <laughs> But um, I, I do think that, that there's something to be said about why he I initially makes that decision as well. It's it's both it's for him as too. Like he's mm -hmm. he, you've seen him go through the ringer, but he is also trying to help a friend in that moment. Um, and I, I and just as a small detail, I wanted to include too. Uh, right before that, where he approaches uh, Frank in the actual jail cell, I love that they present Frank as like. He's got his, his feet up, he's talking to the guards, he's making a joke, and he's like the center of attention, and they're all laughing at him. I can't remember the joke, but I'm sure it's horrible and somehow offensive in some way, I don't know. But um, it, it's just like his, his nonchalant, uncaring attitude just pervades through everything, it's in, in every scene that he does, and I just, I love that detail. But yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great turn in this, in this moment for the movie. 
And I, I want to say one thing too is that I I completely forgot that you don't ever see M. Emma Walsh again after that point. So the last thing you see yeah. is his pants down, his bare ass out to the highway <laughs> as he's like trying yeah. to pull him up, and he just like looks. People so are fucking pathetic. honking at him. <laughs> yeah, people are honking, not even stopping to help him. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and and I like immediately too that that Hoffman he pulls this sort of like reverse power move, and he immediately is able to ignore all of his parole limitations and how powerful he feels in that. Just something as simple as driving again when he's like borrowing cars from Willie or Jenny, and how fast he actually moves around the movie now because so much of it was like yes. you know he had to walk to his job, he had to walk to his motel, and now he's like you know getting he's being able to drive to the sort of shadier sides of L.A. where he's meeting up with his criminal friend so that he can get his pistol and like rob a convenience store and like this little rinky dink setup with the ski mask that you know for a robbery sequence really focuses on how you know the gun probably doesn't even work and the guy he's robbing is just like a scared working dude and like it, there's a lot that's of really how, sad detail to this messy all of the robberies in this are really like oh, a lot they're of so the time real. they don't have masks or anything like that they're just kind of like going in it's pure chaos the, yeah. the only thing mm-hmm. that they seem to have like that's a strategy and maybe that just worked at the time in the 70s was they kind of have like a timer where it's like we have you know four or five minutes if we're not out by then the cops will show up and yeah knowing which part of town you were in and what the response time was and stuff like that was definitely Mm -hmm. like a procedural detail those guys needed to know yeah yeah yeah. but i guess i guess i like that maybe they didn't they don't ever mention it and i'm not sure when cameras became like popularized in these places but i did find it interesting that they just walked in basically with like sunglasses they, they're dressed to the nines in a sense at least 70s version of that uh while they're oh, yeah, doing man. all these oh, yeah. bank they, robberies they didn't even have masks in one of those right they just walked in there with their bare yeah, faces most of them i think <laughs> yeah. i think the grocery store or the um convenience store is the only one where he ends up wearing a mask uh and then the other times they're just like or just free-facing it. Which was funny, because that was probably the most low stake out of any of them. <laughs> Small yeah, like exactly. Korean grocery store or whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I mean, from what I understand, pretty much all of these robberies are true to Ed Bunker stories, and if not ones that he was involved mm. in himself, ones that he met from other people who were in, in, in prison with him. And we actually do get a brief cameo by Ed Bunker himself as one of his old accomplices, who's the guy who starts like pitching him on, on robbing the card game in the Valley and some potential oh. banks that he can oh, rob. That wow. is just Ed Bunker. Um, and I wonder, uh, did, do you know if Ed Bunker had any, did, did he have a similar thing where he couldn't stop at a certain point? Cause that seems to become something major with these robberies with Max, where it's like, he's so determined to almost, go against the system and kind of almost get revenge that he's willing to risk himself and the people he works with during these robberies to oh yeah what well, point well, yeah 100 percent. he said that there was a kind of like live wire sort of aggressive energy you had to have in order to just even have the courage to pull something like this off and he's like yeah sometimes that swung in a negative direction yeah. um, mm. and sometimes it made you not think as clearly like you could be a like there and and we'll talk about it there are some like professional detail throughout here where they do make some smart decisions but then there's also some stuff where he clearly makes some very impulsive and you could argue maybe even 
dramatically self-destructive um, choices uh, as as well, which I, I do think it's possible that some of them were a little bit heightened by Grosbard and, and Hoffman just for, you know, the, the sure. end point they wanted yeah. of the movie, which was that on some level, maybe he kind of wants to get caught. Maybe he wants to be some kind of end. Maybe he wants to go back to the world that he, you know, knows how to command a little bit better than, than the outside world. But mm-hmm. yeah, in, 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 in the early goings, it is just a case of, you know, he, he's getting to flex some power. He's getting some control. He's getting some money. You know, he goes to his pal, Jerry played by once again, talking about the fucking cast, of this movie, mm-hmm. Harry Dean Stanton, Dude, uh, yeah, legend, murdering like, like, like supporting <laughs> characters in this movie. It is so good. Yeah, well, and, I yeah, mean, Jamie awesome. and I just watched Paris, Texas not that long ago together, which was great. And yeah. he was actually also in Cool Hand Luke as one of the supporting guys in oh there as God, well. That's right. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, and awesome. and I, I like Jerry because he's also someone who's, you know, out and living kind of like the straight life and playing his guitar and having a barbecue in his backyard by by the pool. And when his life, his, or sorry, his wife leaves for exactly one minute, he's just like, <laughs> you got to get me fucking out of here. This shit is fucking killing me. I can't do this shit anymore. And he's like, okay, okay, like, listen, I got something. He's like, let's do it. And he's like, do you want to know what it is? He's like, I don't fucking give a shit. Like, let's just do it. And then he's like, just okay, well, what is job. it though? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any, Harry, any Harry bank Dean robbery, Stan's any like, burglary. Oh my God, Harry Dean Stanton's comedic timing in that scene where, like, he goes, yeah. he's like wearing this like goofy shirt and he has like a plate of burgers and stuff. He's like, oh, yeah, doing the the '50s dad thing, you know, playing his guitar. His wife leaves. He's like, "Get me the fuck out of here right now! You have to go, please. <laughs> Whatever you have, please give me." He's that like, one. "Do you have a fucking poker game? I can bring a shotgun to. Like, Jesus Christ, I need to fucking I'm get my ass out of here." So and also, because he con- contributes to the. Like it, oh, it, like he has the like he's got the, the the pool the suburban life even like his wife seems very pleasant as well like she gets up and oh, grabs yeah. everybody oh, yeah. beers like it just yeah. it's it's funny to, especially to watch it in contrast to like Willie's home life which he seemed almost even though we know what he was doing um, behind the scenes he seemed almost like happier uh, and and kind of like uh, trying trying his best and like Harry's at this point or I guess uh, Jerry is at this point where. Um, He's. It's gone too far. It's too normal now, and I just. I got a real kick out of that. It's. It's one of the, uh, the rare comedy beats in the movie that was. And it's really. Good. Yeah, man. You. You even get a sweet scene of uh, Harry Dean uh, playing his guitar like he does later in Twin Peaks: The Return as well. So I was I like, know. man, this is a, this. <sighs> this part of the. This just makes anything you're watching better. But then also, what if Harry Dean was in like some friends of uh, Eddie Coyle level robbery sequences where he's kind of like the smart guy, <laughs> the guy who doesn't want to go back. And, you know, like I love that sequence yeah. when they go to do the poker game and uh, they're waiting on the third guy to show up who's going to deliver them the shotgun because, you know, everyone knows you can you can't cover a poker game without a shotgun. You just you'd be a <laughs> moron to go in and do that. And uh, Max is like trying to just like impulsively go for it anyway. He's like, we could take them. Two of us. We got pit, we got handguns like we can go. In. And like, Jerry is the voice of reason the entire time he's being like this is pretty unsafe and pretty unprofessional if we were to do this and when that guy shows up and empty handed without the shotgun and with nothing but excuses and fucking Hoffman just fucking unleashes he starts punching him through the driver window of the car which I listening to the commentary with Hoffman he was like this was a detail that Ed Bunker said that he just actually did he was like he was so angry at the dude he didn't wait for him he's like normally like logically you would just be like step on out of the car let's have a conversation and then you beat the shit out of him because it's kind of awkward to have to (laughs) throw your fist through the fucking window like that but he was like no he was so fucking pissed that he just started beating the shit out of the dude through the window yeah (laughs) 
That's so funny. I love that this is like Bunker's details that he includes. Like you'd think. Yeah, like, he was on set like every day. Hoffman said that him and Ed Bunker were friends and he was there to watch every single sequence to make sure that it was like, you know, that it was it was something that a character like that would do. Like he spent real time with ex-cons. He was like he said that he really wanted a man like a real guy like Max to be able to watch the film and go like that is our reality and that was where they what mm-hmm. they kind of did and they did it against warner brothers wishes like they basically the reason no one had heard much too much about this film for the longest time is it wasn't a commercial film and the head hoffman had to beg the head of warner brothers to even like give it the small release that it got because they were like we understand the artistic value as like a depiction of this ex-con psychology and actions and feelings and everything but we were like this is just going to depress people. Like it, it's, you know, Wasn't he also it, it's, speaking <laughs> against like the, 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 the studio itself and not the film. And then they sued him and saying that because they were criticizing the studio, it was bad for the film. Like they, they tried to do some, yeah, yeah on, something. On they like tried to pull a whole bunch of shit. They, 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 they took it from him in post and everything too. Like it was, yeah. Was so like there was lawsuit. like yeah. or something, I think. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's, so, that's wild. But but like I mean, I, his instincts were right on it. Like all of the the best stuff that's in this movie is would be like is all of the stuff that he let Ed Bunker co-direct, and all of the stuff that you would like imagine yeah. is like yeah. you know no one else would put into a movie like that wordless little procedural theft they do of him breaking into the loan shop next door to a pawn shop and crowbarring oh, yeah, a hole in the wall so he can like, slink through it to steal a shotgun and and, and ammunition. Like that is like a five to 10 minute long sequence almost of just completely wordless Dustin Hoffman supposed to be going home and being like, you know, I, that guy didn't get me a shotgun. I'm going to go fucking get a shotgun. There's a shotgun in that window. How do I get through there? How do I do that? And it's just, I don't know. It's very, very dirty and real and just such a matter of fact depiction of the way that that psychology works. Yeah. I, the, the, yeah and the thing I took away from this movie the most, uh, when I first saw it was just how methodical, like all the, all yeah. the, all the crime shit felt because usually in a movie like this, that's where it gets really cinematic and you, you amp that shit up and it's mm, just like yeah. crazy action or, you know, these wild things and you're watching it and you're like, I really haven't seen many movies that do it the way this, this movie is pulling it off. You know, it's cause it makes you think and it's like, yeah. okay, well how would I do that if I was in that situation or, or, you know, what is he up to as he's going about this? And then, it, you know, it, I mean, it totally makes sense with the, uh, the former prison bird being like a consultant on the movie. And I think that definitely is a huge benefit for it. And if, if that's part of the reason why that movie was buried, then it, it makes no sense to me because because I think that's one of the best things about yeah. it. <clears throat> Absolutely. I like the, um, I also like that Max kind of is fearful of the chaotic nature of it all as well. Like there's a line, af- it's directly after he goes into the, that like, um, that's that general store or pawn shop or whatever and, and uh, hammers at the wall and gets the gun. And when he goes back to Jenny, she says something like, um, uh, whatever it is you do out there scares the shit out of me. And he just replies yeah. with a me too. So it's like yeah. he's fully aware of all the risks that he's doing, but he's just, it's, it's, and I think it's in the same scene where it's like, this is all I know, and I'm trying to get my shit together. And this is, yeah, like this is the scene where I went, of that. 
like not even knowing that Michael Mann was involved, I went, okay, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> like this was this was ripped. This yeah. feels like a scene ripped directly from Heat. The, all the romantic elements and the tragic romantic elements of his relationship with Jenny when she, you know, when when she starts to pick up on, yeah, like what he's doing and starts getting scared and concerned. Like I love that conversation mm-hmm. where she's like, he's like, you know, how far do you want to take this? Like, what do you think? I did. It, it, it reminded me of the I'm moment in the car in Thief. When uh, James Caan is like, you know, I'm this, you're that. Like, let's go get on with this big romance. You know, like this is how it works. You know, this kind of thing. And he's and he's basically like, you know, what do you think that I'm doing out there? I'm working a hot dog stand. Like, I can't work a regular job, and I'm not going to be taking your money. So, I do what I do. I take scores, which is, I think almost the line from heat as well. Um, and, uh, I think he goes like, if, if you're telling me it's too heavy and you can't take it, then I will walk out the door. But I, but I, I don't want to. And they basically both agree that they will maintain this and he will keep the crime shit outside and not bring it into the house and he won't hurt her and he won't involve her. But, Maybe it's best if she doesn't ask any more questions, which is like one of the best lines of the thing. You know, maybe just shut the fuck up for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Just let it happen. Yeah. Yeah, Meanwhile, cut to Harry Dean in his workshop, like sawing off a fucking barrel of the shotgun that he just, uh, uh, you know, stole. And he's like seeing how it fits under his shoulder. And it's like one of those great details where you're like, well, what are they going to do with that? What are you guys doing? They're up to something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And speaking of the chaos, like this, this uh, when it gets to the um, this just with one shot and the the jewelry uh, store sequence. Um, the jewelry store sequence is amazing. There's the like whole sequence, like no strategy at all. I love the shot. He just go walks in. It's this long shot of him going closer and closer to the camera. You can see the entirety of the store. Every glass case is right in frame. He just calmly takes out some goggles and a pair of gloves and a hammer and just starts smashing the shit out of every single <laughs> glass case. With like, there's just no, you know. Uh, discernible looking skill or anything. It's just kind of like smash and grab, smash and grab. And I just, I love how they set up that shot. It just totally focuses in on the, like the messiness of the entire situation. But but, but what's so crazy is you're right about how they are highlighting the messiness, but it is like a planned messiness, which is what's interesting because it is like a very procedurally minded, obviously unplanned messiness, but yeah. 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 yeah, Like, but, but it's very procedurally minded, obviously on like a filmmaking level. Like, I mean, like after that sequence, the casual way they ditch the getaway car for the truck and it's in like the single panning wide shot where they've already kind of set that up or in, in the Mm -hmm. later jewelry, high sequence um because uh, like that's in the first robbery they do and then the, the 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 second one that you were referring to um my favorite aspect of it is not just him very calmly walking in and being like step back please ma'am before going <laughs> fucking ape shit on the glass cases <laughs> it's it that. my my favorite detail is the, is the planned part when he sets the bag down he slowly puts the gloves on he puts the goggles on like he's thought this through yeah. he's thought like oh yeah well, i can't I, i'm gonna so reach in there small. i'll cut my yeah. hands maybe the glass will hit me in the eye or something like it is like, like this is a very professional version of like a smash and like it so it has the anxious dirty detail of like men who will do something fucking crazy like this on a physical level but there is like a level of 
planning put into it. I mean, there's even that scene before where he buys her or he thinks about buying her this ridiculously expensive watch and he does it entirely as, as a means of scouting out the place for the robbery and like asking about the washrooms and then, you know, cut to them doing their blueprints and everything that they're doing. And which is yeah. kind of shitty in a sense too, because it's like Jenny is looking at it as this kind of moment of, you know, they're on a, they're on a date, they're having a connection. And, and I do like too in her character that she's laughing at how like ridiculously priced everything is. Like she looks at the most expensive watch that's there that the guy's like, I literally can't wear that into work. Like that's insane. Yeah. (laughs) She even calls it disgusting. So I I just, I love those details. But then of course you have like Max looking around and scoping it out and everything. And it's just like, it, it, it has that thought of, you know, even though he's with her, he's still highly focused on the job and the task at hand. And regardless of the, his feelings for her, th- this is probably what's going to take precedent. Um, it just it always seems to with him. He, it's, it's Well, yeah, I mean, he's to. kind of a selfish guy, too, right? Like even the stuff yeah, with Harry Dean that they set up. Along yeah, the way for sure. Yeah. But b- before that sequence where they actually break into the jewelry store, there's the other robbery that they do, I think, at the bank. And he keeps taking too long and you're unsure whether it's like purely out of greed or as I was kind of saying earlier, like, you know, does he want more money to spend on uh, on Jenny or, you know, yeah. is it some complex and existential thing? Like, yeah, yeah. Is, is he just testing the limits of the system and like revenge, you know, in, in some right. kind of way? Or is he just plainly self-destructive and, and does want to get caught, which is a question the movie kind of brings up at a certain point when you're more comfortable. When, you, when, when you've spent your life in this world, maybe you kind of want to return to it on some level. But he doesn't think about the fact that by taking those extra few seconds that they say the cops are getting closer and the alarms are going off that he's getting Harry Dean Stanton, um, uh, in, in, in more danger. And he literally has to go. Like when I say go, we fucking go dude. Like don't pull that shit on me. It's incredibly unprofessional. And what does he do in the next sequence? He he was like, look, we're going to rob the jewelry store and this one's in Beverly Hills, which is, you know, the response time's a little bit faster. Well, hey, instead of taking three minutes, let's take like a minute and 30 seconds, which, of course, he pushes to the limit. (laughs) Of course, he also arrives and he doesn't have a driver. So he gets fucking yeah. Willie believe, to be their driver as the Busey amateur replacement. <laughs> oh my God. And Gary Busey is clearly, he's fucking like sweaty and anxious and high. And you're going, Harry Dean is like, dude, what the fuck? Like we, dude. you had, you told me we had a pro wheel man and you're just yeah. freaking me the shit out, man. Like you should have told me this shit, man. That's not cool, man. Like Harry Dean's like freaking out. <laughs> I love how pissed he yeah. is about everything going on because rightfully so, dude, if I saw that my getaway driver was Gary Busey, I'd be like, are you are you kidding me, Dustin? Like, what are you doing? And, and the, like, it, it's so frustrating to watch too because uh, Harry Dean Stanton already did not want to go through with this job because he's like, it's dangerous. It's Beverly Hills. It's Beverly you fucking know, Hills, man. He's like, what are you? Like, he's like, we're we're, we're pulling <laughs> off small shit. What is this like? And and I love that his uh, Hoffman's argument to him is like, you're a thief, man. Doesn't it feel good like working with me, like holding a shotgun? You know, you could quit your shitty job tomorrow. You know, <laughs> he's just really just trying to yeah. talk him into it, beat by beat. <laughs> And what's shitty, like really shitty too, is that this is, this is, in my opinion, only like Jerry's only going through with it to this, like this far because he has trust in Max and Max is totally taking advantage of that, especially at this point, because like you said, he's already done that. He didn't listen to him in the first bank robbery. He hires, uh, um, Willie to be the getaway driver and, and instantly he's like hitting curbs and shit like that. Like it's, it's just, um, he's 
he's he's now at the point where, and this is where it really gets frustrating to watch his character because in that first half he's so endearing and he has a charm to him and, and you're like rooting for him to get through and and, and he's and really careful sense, and considerate as a character right, right. He, he doesn't seem like yeah, a guy exactly. who's like on the and edge then, necessarily you know he, he right he, you and see then that he more gets professional to this side. point where you're like you're being stupid dude stop just yeah. just stop all you have to do is listen to jerry and you're probably gonna be okay and and it's it's just so frustrating to watch someone that is clearly good at what he does, but because he's he's kind of in this I guess like almost rebellious fuck you phase of his career that he's going way too over the top for his I don't you know like we said it could be his own ego it could be for Jenny it could be to fuck the system it's just it's it's probably an amalgamation of all of those things really and and he's just kind of gone over the edge a little bit. But yeah, it's that was something that was really interesting is just watching myself get more and more frustrated with his character. Oh yeah, man, all of those amazing. Like, I don't want you caught, but you're going to get caught. What the fuck are you doing? That kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and, and, I love uh, those tense dolly shong, uh, dolly shots along the like smash displays as the alarm is blaring and it cut to like the sweaty low angle close-ups on his goggled face like reaching in as 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 fast as he can. You could just hear Harry D stand in the background <laughs> being like, "This is the last goddamn time I'm working with you, man. We got to get the fuck out of here, <laughs> yeah. man." Like what the like we've been way longer than 90 seconds man and obviously they also take so long that when they go out back you see the wheel man has already got scared and has already fucking ditched them and now they are on a fucking foot chase through Beverly Hills in these tracking shots of them through the alleys and hopping the suburb fences and he literally gets Jerry shot and killed in a gunfight with with the cops which is brutal to watch yeah yeah and it's, it's, and it's, it's so, it, there's like a, well, again, a kind of a sad acceptance on Jerry's face when he's dying. Like, there's not this big emotional scene. Max just kind of looks at him as he's dead and realizes what he's done. And Jerry just has this look on his face like, fuck, I should have listened to myself. That kind of thing, you know? <laughs> it's just so, so sad. Or he's just like, God damn, dude, you, you just, you want to go back. You pushed it so far that you're just like trying to get back, back to the, uh, back to jail. It's, it's, it's really, yeah. it's and really now sad. you've gotten me killed. It's, yeah. oh my God, it's, it's absolutely brutal. And, and the connection too, when you start to realize that like, because when, when you first get out and you see Willie isn't there, you are frustrated in a sense. You're like, Jesus Christ, Willie, like, what did, what did you do? Do you have to, like, go out and get, like, heroin or something like that? Yeah. But then you but he shouldn't have even too, been the driver, you, right? Like, it was Max's fault. Well, yeah. he shouldn't 100%. have been the driver. And then eventually it seems, too, that when him and Willie have that interaction, which we'll, we'll get to, he mentions that he's like, you gave me a time, and when it went past that time... I left because I thought we were gonna get caught. I thought that was the it's entire true. point. So you st- and then and then Max is kind of responding like, "No, that's not true. I was on time." Like he can't even fathom that he would have done that. Like he would have actually. Yeah. He can't seem to take on the guilt, really. No, and it, he's and purely that's also driven by anger at that point. Yeah, yeah, he, he's yeah. like completely yeah. delusional. <clears throat> Yeah, well, I mean, what Hoffman mm-hmm. said when he was talking with Bunker about that scene, because Hoffman, you know, a little bit more of a sensitive guy in terms of like what he his approach and how he kind of played him earlier. And he was like, you really mm-hmm. don't think that, you know, Max would think about the kid? You know, he was kind of playing with that kid earlier, you know, like he kind of liked the guy. And Ed Bunker was like, no, all you're thinking in that moment when you're in that situation is this dude got my best friend killed. If he had done what I told him to do or he had done what I would have done in his shoes 
this would have went differently and that that's the only thing you're thinking right. and you're thinking he needs to fucking die. And so, like, again, Ed Bunker is there to make the, you know, the authentic decision that a character like this would make. And it just, yeah, it makes this movie so much better, too. Uh, But also does make it more complicated and and thorny when you watch that because you're you're kind of there's so much like this situation went down the way that it did. These people died in the way that they did. So pathetically because in almost entirely of decisions that he made, um, and and yeah, when he gives really him that bear hug and he's like holding him and saying like, you know, you know, he's telling him that 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 he's, you know, it's not your fault, man. I shouldn't have asked you to do it. It was too heavy for you. And then he just fucking shoots him in the gut in his mm. own garage and that slow walk out to his car and like that single take of them driving as he processes kind of like what he just did, but immediately compartmentalizes it because she's like, did you get it? And he's like, what the money? And he's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I went in there to get money, not to just fucking shoot this, not to execute my, my old friend. Yeah, Hoffman is so good in that yeah. scene. Uh, yeah, after, right after he kills Gary Busey, he's so good. <clears throat> it's so it, like I was getting unbelievably frustrated. It was it was <laughs> like in a, in a great way, in a great way. This downfall of this character was just such a man. It was just grating to watch at times. Um, it, it like after he kills Willie, that really is such a definitive moment it's like we have seen him make the big mistakes and get jerry killed and and almost get them caught prior and and even almost get jenny in trouble and all of that but the just the outright murder of a friend after something happens that was probably more your fault um is just really hard to swallow (laughs) especially with a character that you're you're kind of rooting for and and you like yeah. especially in the first like three quarters of it um yeah it's it's, 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 it's a great it's just, character piece oh, it really it's just is. fucking heartbreaking too how he just like drags all these other guys down too who i mean you know they had their issues and they they definitely weren't in the straight life completely but it's like you know everybody right. around him ends up dead <laughs> because he just yeah he, he, he just couldn't pre- take it definitely better off uh with the burgers around the pool getting budweiser's <laughs> from his wife dude i would i would hang out with harry and stand at a barbecue i don't i don't give a shit that sounds like a great life to me yeah Yeah, sounds pretty rad (laughs) yeah and and the few jobs he was going to pull off he was going to make sure that they were like the safest possible jobs you know know. he was going to ease into it and then immediately Hoffman's like oh let's fucking rob Beverly Hills jewelry store (laughs) it'll be great (laughs) yeah yeah and uh just so I can give Jenny the necklace that she's not even going to respect me for yep No, and and, and when she realizes kind of like what he's done and that's that when they're driving away and they're, you know, planning their possible escape that they were planning and that radio news report comes on of the botched heist and like the violent nature of it, you know, starts to kind of uh, uh, occur to her and she does realize that maybe it's a little too heavy and she can't handle it. And there's that awesome shot attached to the driver's side window as she just like, you know, she's telling him to stop and he slams on the brakes and she runs out and basically just like vomits in, in the desert. And she's just like, this is like I not exactly you know I am sort of involved that at at this point and despite that she's still kind of like ready to go Bonnie and Clyde with him because she is genuinely still attracted to the version of we of him that we saw in that first half of the film she knows that there is a you know sort of more 
considerate, more, you know, sort of uh, beaten down man in there. And it's him who kind of realizes the poisonous nature of what he's brought to his friends lives and that he is sinking all of mm-hmm. these people into the criminal pit with him. And he when he comes to that realization, it's not like this big dramatic moment. It's like this casual slow zoom of them sitting, smoking and drinking at like a diner just on the outskirts of L.A., basically, where, you know, they put it together that maybe he doesn't belong in her world and me she definitely doesn't belong in 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 his and uh he even just straight up says that you know she's like why can't i go with you he says because i want to get caught like i deserve to be punished for these things that i've done and it's this like long driving overlaid shot with his mug shots going over the images of the desert from his present day mug shots to his mug shots when he was a teenager. And I don't know if they, where they got this mug shot of Dude, like, that it was, looks, it that looks, was so it weird. just looks like Dustin Hoffman. I, I mean, it just was, looks like Dustin Hoffman. I was Hoffman. worrying the same yeah. thing. It was so, like, so bizarre. Were you arrested 20 years ago? Did we use <laughs> <Yeah>. that? <laughs> he was so method. He was planning for this movie even back in his teenage years. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of a much bleaker, uh, version of like what they do with cool hand Luke with the fade into like the photo but he's obviously that the mythic version where he's got the two women beside him and this one is just a just a history of of him going in and out of this oh, yeah, I was gonna say yeah. when they're doing the Paul Newman memorial YouTube video uh editing at the end of cool hand <laughs> Luke it's great <laughs> yeah it's awesome Ver- yeah, they versus don't do, this they where don't have they the romantic thing here no, well, I mean, with with this, they very much wanted to bring up what was the thing that Ed Bunker wanted to get at his whole time, which is that, you know, when you've been in this thing for so long, it is so hard to get out. And maybe when you got in in the first place, it wasn't for anything that was your fault. But at, at a certain point, you are doing things that are your fault. Yeah. You know, like there is, you know, he mm-hmm. maybe when he was a teenager, he wasn't as guilty, but there is some regret baked into, you know, how long he's been doing this for and some of the decisions he's been maybe forced to make, but he still made on on some level he's still culpable for. And yeah, I think it's really interesting to also show you like, you know, how hard it must be to live an entire lifetime like this, to just be so scared and desperate and like no future ahead of you. And it's like, here's a guy who's had that for his entire existence, basically. Yeah. yeah. It's so. heart it's heartbreaking. Really it's, sad it's movie. <laughs> really depressing at the end, seeing him as a kid. <laughs> Yeah. Was what was there any other path? Uh not not with uh Emmett Walsh as as your homeboy. Uh, that that's piece of shit. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe if friend, we are uh, Frank. uh pivoting towards the uh reductive rating round. This is a very very high 4 for me. I honestly don't even know what's nice. maybe holding me back from from the 5. It doesn't quite um hit that uh level for me but it's really really close and i do wonder if i just kind of keep going back to this one if it'll it'll still be there and i i do wonder if maybe i'm still a little bit attracted to what man would eventually do with this in terms of like just the raw subjectivity in the style um but i also Mm. completely understand the style decisions that they made in this film and I do think that they work and I think that there is something interesting about the you know sort of tougher uh sort of uh precision based bluntness that they decided to go for despite the some of the seediness and intensity of some of the you know sequences and environments especially when you get into the dangerous robbery sequences and 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 everything but 
I think it does suit a movie about, you know, this very authentic depiction of criminal life and and mindset and this sort of devastating compassion for those who have experienced violence and are maybe too comfortable dealing it out in, in, in response to it. And obviously Hoffman, too, totally, you know, in the zone um, on on this film, you can tell how much you know he had a passion for this character and for the subject matter, and the way that he just switches on a dime from like the tough mask that he's kind of assumed in order to communicate with the various people in in situations in social situations that he's just assumed after decades of you know sort of anger and abuse that you know he's he's experienced, and then when he just when he lets it slip and he goes live wire full self destruction punishment mode he he really does uh kill it um and and also some pretty amazing just like la photography and very confident wordless like naturalistic directing by grosbard i i was surprised looking at the rest of his career and like really not seeing a whole lot of uh you know it didn't seem like he made much else that was kind of like this. I had to go into his like mm-hmm. assistant directing credits before I could start to find some films that maybe reminded me of of this because he uh, assistant directed uh, The Hustler with Paul Newman, which kind of has that oh. kind of bleak character study part. Uh, he also assistant directed Sidney Lumet's The Pawnbroker, um, which which definitely has mm-hmm. a, a little bit of this depiction of uh, you know sort of like the, the 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 underclass and the sort of psychological breakdown of it a little bit. And so, but yeah, other than that like i'm kind of surprised we didn't see much else. and it might be because him and hoffman didn't have the best time working on this together it sounds like hoffman was a little annoyed that he had to give up the directing chair and but they, they actually also didn't do the commentary together which i thought was a kind of a telling choice um <laughs> yeah. but, but both of them had respectful things to say about one another they just i think they got pretty upset and had some differences when they when they made the film but uh the film is so confidently made and so well made that i it doesn't really feel like it's seeps into the film in in my opinion so no. i i it's such a focused uh such a moving and desperate film so i i loved this yeah i'm uh, i'm also gonna give it a four i thought this was awesome um something i'm definitely gonna go back to as well i i really would like to see just that first half kind of recontextualize knowing where this goes and like i knew in a sense that it was kind of ha- gonna have this doomed quality but i just didn't know how much his character and how you kind of view him would change and i found that really interesting and and i mean hoffman does such a great job of that kind of uh that slow transformation or that slow reveal, I guess, of his character. It's, it's awesome. Um, the cinematography is also really good. There was one thing I wanted to mention that I don't think we did, which was when he starts to go on the run with Jenny, they start to do this thing where the camera is constantly shooting him from really far away as if he's like being watched or he feels like mm-hmm. he's being watched. Um, and I just, I loved that sequence and the way that they shot it. It was, it was very cool. And I, I, it's the guy that did, I mean, the exorcist, the French connection, the taking of Pelham one, two, three network. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, Imagine that guy not in New York, but he's in Burbank and like the Valley. That's what, that's what you're getting here. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just, I think that this is, um, just a really great nuanced character piece. So yeah, I'm also right there with you. I'm going to give it a pretty strong four. Yeah, yeah, I I would uh, definitely go with you guys. Um, I think I gave this a five when I first watched it, and then I I went back down to a four on this last rewatch. Just from the the fact that it it is 
kind of a downer of a movie. It's not necessarily one that like, you know I want to like <laughs> turn on all the time like I would like taking a poem one two three or something like that of, of this era of this like kind of gritty seventies crime crime drama. Um, but um, mm-hmm. the I mean my God the cast of this movie um, I I think this is yep. probably my favorite Dustin Hoffman performance that I've seen. Um, I, I think. Uh, it, it's elevated by everybody else, obviously, Harry Dean Stanton and Gary Busey and even like Kathy Bates in her small role. Um, <clears throat> Emmett Walsh. M. Emmett Walsh, of course, my, my, my boy M. Emmett. Um, yeah. And even Teresa Russell of oh, uh, Wild great. Things fame. Yeah. She's awesome. She's yeah, I like really her a lot. Good. I, she has this very kind of like sensitive, you know, naivety about her that I think really uh, balances well off of Dustin Hoffman, who's obviously, you know, seen some shit in his life. Um, but uh yeah it's it's just like a really effective gritty 70s kind of crime drama character study that I feel like when I watched it I'm like oh my god where has this been all my life <laughs> like a movie like this I feel like should be talked about more which is why I'm glad we're covering it mm-hmm. um, and it looks beautiful and and one thing I wanted to say too which uh, I, I don't think I, I mentioned in my notes was the uh, the set design on some of these were really good too like I, I liked when he went to uh, his girlfriend's apartment or house or whatever just how like sleek and white everything was and mm-hmm how kind of foreign it all mm. felt, you know, with him in this environment. And he, he just felt really out of place in something like this, you know, just like the, the visual the contrast of his life versus what she's living. And he's kind of, you know, corrupting Especially her. Especially with that scene where he like walks in after the, uh, the pawn shop thing. And oh it's yeah. Just filthy from head to toe. Yes. So it's just like, yeah, the white walls and he's just covered <laughs> in dirt. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's so good. And yeah, it's just a beautiful looking movie too. I, I love, uh, the look of it. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's really one of the more underlooked, uh, movies of this time. And I, uh, I really want to check out the Blu-ray and see the restoration that they did on it too, because I, I'm sure it looks great. Um, yeah, it looks, it, it looks very, very good. And also last thing, <laughs> I wanted to throw in too was the score. I just somehow somehow oh, yeah. did not mention the score at all. Yeah. Big mm. jazzy romantic theme for that opening credits gets you right in the zone. And then a lot of the rest of it is like these very kind of like sad twangy kind of like country guitars to it. And it's, it's by David Shire who also did uh, the music for other seventies bangers. You will recognize the conversation, all the president's men and also the taking of Pelham one, two, three wow. as well. So like they, they clearly, oh, they nice. knew yeah. the vibe of movie when they were choosing their cinematographer and their composer, what they were hoping for. <laughs> nice. Yeah, definitely. They got it. But uh, yeah, I think that is going to wrap it up for uh, Straight Time. We are going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about Raising Arizona. Stick around. Oh, man. We're absolutely going to get him back. Just ain't no question about that. Give me that baby, you warthog from hell! Hey, you want to know another thing? I'm going to be a better person from here on out. Let's go get Nathan Jr. Raising Arizona, a comedy beyond belief. Well, it ain't Ozzy and Harriet. All right, we are back and we are talking Raising Arizona, the 1987 American crime comedy film written and directed by Joel and Ethan 
Cohen. And uh, we've done actually, looking back on our uh, episodes here, we've done quite a few Cohen Brothers uh, ep- episodes that we might even recommend people mm-hmm. go back to because we've talked about The Big Lebowski, Barton Fink, uh, Miller's Crossing, and none of these actually even on the same episodes. They've all been paired with something else. The Coens always made a movie that also is kind of yeah. like another movie uh, <laughs> is the thing that we've learned here. Um, and of course, we've we covered their... as well, right? That's what I was going to say, yeah. their debut Southern uh, Fried Neo-Noir Blood simple which is the era we are going to be going back to today uh, as as raising arizona was their sophomore effort that followed that kind of micro budget piece of like lean indie crime pulp that you know really put them on uh the map and i remember when we covered that we were just blown away how you could just see about every single career interest they were going to have for decades in that movie like it was like an artistic <laughs> statement like they were never going to get to make another film again yeah they were, you know it's just it was confidently made under scuzzier limitations but it has everything the dark fatalistic sense of humor the sweaty southern sort of existential neo-noir western vibe the you know frequent focus on cr- cruel combating forces of you know self-interest or stupidity in their various petty criminal characters you know the uh you know people trapped this, like, in these... intertwining of characters that eventually meet up in some ironic way or something yeah like chance that. and, and fate and farcical contraptions that these characters find themselves in where like a minor miscommunication or impulse or urge just escalates into something way way bigger um and uh, I guess Raising Arizona was born out of the fact that they felt like they went a little dark with Blood Simple, which I love, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> like that movie yeah. has such a dirty, paranoid, like constricting atmosphere to it that just occasionally borders on horror. Um, their their connection mm-hmm. to Sam Raimi almost makes a little bit of sense when we look back at, at, at that film and with this film a little bit, too. We'll talk about some of the camera moves, yeah. but um, <clears throat> The uh, like like even though the the characters in Blood Simple have the same like deadpan clumsiness that they kind of love so much, it is just like you know it's 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 very dark. So with this, they were like, let's keep the southern crime part. You know, we'll keep the you know the the, the sense of humor. Most of the crew will come back, including uh, director of photography d- director of photography Barry Sonnenfeld and composer Carter Burwell, who basically has scored every single one of their films since this. Um, they have some of that scrappy textured filmmaking style still here and of course the keen eye for all of the eccentric character subjectivity and and detail and decision making uh but they were like you know what if we tried to generate something a little bit more buoyant and compassionate out of it rather than you know just completely pathetic and horrible greed as you uh see in 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 some of their other films and thus they created this uh this this iconic odd couple pairing of High or H.I. McDonough, a uh, manic ex-convict played by Nicolas Cage and his wife Edwina or Ed uh, McDonough played by Holly Hunter, who's incredible. This came out the same year as Broadcast News, which is just one of the greatest rom-coms ever. So I was like, Holly Hunter, she had one hell of a 1987. Just um, it. She's so good. <clears throat> she is. And to give them almost like 
what seems like like an exaggerated, almost like goofy sitcom relationship that they have where she's like, he's a next con. She's a cop. <laughs> They're fighting again. You know, like that kind of deal. They're opposites. Um, but uh, but of course, putting them through the sort of Bonnie and Clyde, like crime couple pairing scheming antics that they put them through where, you know, they pull, try to pull off one of the strangest heists in in movie history. And instead of ending up in the realm of like, I don't know, I was trying to think of other movies that this kind of reminded me of it. Like there's a little bit of Clint Eastwood's A Perfect World or, you know, some of the hillbilly comedy antics of like Hal Needham. But the thing that it reminded me of the most was the Sugarland Express, the Steven Spielberg uh, debut film, which is essentially this like Texas countryside chase movie about like a Bonnie and Clyde or Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry uh, situation. Mm. But I was blown away that there was another movie where it's all about them trying to get a kid. Cause in that movie, they also, they hijack a cop car and they take a patrolman hostage and it's in order to get their kid back from the state because they're both uh, ex cons who have had their kids taken away and like put into like a foster home. And it turns into like a roadrunner chase with various troopers and reporters and vigilantes. And it's a whole anti-authority action spectacle that Spielberg stages with his visual dynamic stuff that he, that he does. But you know, it, it has a similar sensibility of like the, comic absurdity of like characters like this and mixed with the real sad mm-hmm. detail about you know how impoverished and kind of unlucky and and sort of tragic they they are um in a way but it's it's that funneled through that just unique cohen sensibility or where everything has just so much uh personality to it yeah, to a point, it seems like I'm just reading it in the like second paragraph of the wiki here, where initially people were saying like it was self-conscious and they weren't sure whether it was fantasy or real. But it seems like yeah, that's they're kind quoting of a Ebert. That was Ebert's <laughs> very, very oh. famous pan of the movie, actually, which he was just you know, hey. The man was horny and he was right some of the times. The man was also just an idiot, you know, sometimes as well. So and this is this is one of those ones where I yeah, his line. I actually have it here is the real world of trailer parks and 7-Eleven, uh, 7-Elevens and Pampers or the fantasy world of bikers from another dimension. He felt these two things did not cohere in a meaningful way where it, I went that quality mm. and how like it's like a screwball comedy but it's also like a crime western road movie looney tune like that is what made this thing so uh, effective to me actually friend of the pod spencer uh called it bringing up a baby to the road warrior and i'm like how does that not immediately trigger <laughs> like like amazing things in your brain where you're just like i just can't believe this exists and i'm stunned and i'm enthralled you know ebert apparently yeah. found and a if way. anything i <laughs> Yeah, and if anything, like that, I I feel like we've talked about that kind of uh, fantasy realism element that they bring to the table all the time. Like Barton Fink kind of has that similar thing, where by mm-hmm. the end of it, like Goodman almost becomes this kind of uh, like like fairy tale character in a, in a, in a sense. Yeah, um, symbolic. And, He's surrounded yeah. by hellfire. You yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they 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 do that. Yeah, exactly. They do that so often. I mean, g- going to like Oh Brother Where Art Thou with the 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 guy chasing mm-hmm. uh, the three convicts. He, he's a very like supernatural type figure. Even going to like No Country for Old Men, where you know Anton Sugar is like mm-hmm. another one of these like just deadly forces of nature who doesn't really quite fit with the rest of the movie, but that makes him that much more imposing. 
Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Does Chigurh not also uh, shoot an animal on the side of the road at one point too? Like he is almost the same function as the biker is in this film. He might. <laughs> and and honestly, there were yeah. there were a lot of parallels with him coming to jo- Josh Brolin's trailer and the biker coming to uh, Hi's uh, trailer too. That's like, and he's kind of like checking out the place. And uh, they use some of those like same sequences mm-hmm. and shots and stuff w- when it comes to that those characters in particular. Um, but yeah, and <clears throat> although it's played for like comedy in this, obviously there is this sense of like mystery behind that character where it's like maybe I have a lesson to teach you. But obviously, with the way that they deal with uh, with Leonard in this, when we get to it, it's just like. He's just this kind of like death rider or something like that. Like the first time you see him, he's just on his bicycle. He's filthy looking, big old beard. And he's just shooting every single thing that he passes, even to a point where he sets like a dandelion on fire just by zooming by it. So like it it has that that element like he's doom is coming. But in this version, obviously, it's a lot more cartoonish. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, yeah, I, I found the mix of like tackling some real world problems that some actual, you know, people have some anxieties of both parental ones, financial ones. These characters are motivated by things that are recognizable, I think, to people in, in the real world. There's a quote that Cage gets at one point in the movie where it's just, you know, sometimes it's hard. It's a hard world for small things. And that's the kind of character perspective that these people come from um and then it's like the rest of the movie around them is kind of trying to come up with this cartoonish dream where they could maybe almost become like folk heroes in uh, in, in their own way petty criminals can become uh sort of like romantic underdogs in a story uh and uh, mm-hmm. get into all kinds of antics that they get into and i i don't know i i found it quite um moving at a, at, at a certain point and i you know i did not find the mix of the two things like that confusing. I found it just exaggerated and, and heightened in an expressive way. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I did not get that critique I, when I, I was watching. I this. think it's odd too, that that was like such a, a driving point of like Ebert's critique or whatever of the movie back when it came out in the sense that like, you know, this is like the Cohen's second movie. And um, I feel like there's like a real, like kind of humanity and like empathy in this movie for these characters that doesn't necessarily exist in, in some of their other future, movies that they that they would make and i, I they I, love these characters more than the ones in burn after <laughs> yes reading, i, I, think, I for love sure. the coen yeah. brothers okay I, I, I they're they're like one of my favorite filmmakers but like like the way that they treat burn after reading characters versus this one is like there there's a stark difference you know and i feel like yeah they're like kill the stupid people in burn after reading <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah there, there's not that kind of ironic Unless they're, detachment. They're like, i hope they find love and family right yeah it, it's it's very endearing and it's very sweet Sweet. And that's not something they're really known for. So I, I think it's a good change of pace. Yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah, I definitely. think that too, it, it helps that again, they are just taking these characters, like even if they are making them caricatures in, in certain regards, they are taking them kind of in their situations in as if they were real and serious and really mattered to these characters. Like Nick Cage is obviously playing high, who is this convenience store robber with a penchant for rambunctious chaos and destruction we will say and and he has a lot of anxiety about kind of slowing down or settling down or becoming a 
quote unquote, like a real adult and essentially keeps getting locked up in his various tacky Hawaiian shirts and wild, unkempt bedhead mop of hair and his fucking Woody Woodpecker tattoo that speaks to his wacky lack of civility and maturity and and control. I love how he even explains his own backstory where he's like, I come from a long line of frontiersmen and and, and outdoor types. (laughs) And and, and, uh, he even at one point explains his sort of like class desperation where he's like, you know, I tried to stand up and fly straight, but it wasn't easy with some bitch Reagan in the White House. And they say he's a decent man. So maybe his advisors are just confused like he's such a sweetheart in that way and and i i feel like they try to provide him with some of that energy too yeah and i do love that as he's saying these this thing where he's going on about like how you know he could he could maybe do better and all of that he at the same time they're having him like go into a store and like get a shotgun out and like kind of have a smile on his face as he's doing it and walk in um and then as he's also explaining this he's going in and out of the system like like a crazy amount it's 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 again very cartoonish the way it is to the point where even he's like across from the people that judge his parole and they know him and they're very they're almost friendly the way that they talk like what's Um, going on hi welcome back dude (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly like legitimately friendly not just the fake stuff that you get from frank in in a straight time and it, it's it's just funny because it, it seems like he's been through it so many times and you, you even see it like three or four times, I think, in this 10 minute intro that he's kind of uh, he's almost he's made friends <laughs> within the system. And he is a very uh, he plays him very charming and, and caring, but cool, you know, uh, a little bit, um, even with his chaos. Like when I say cool, I just mean that he seems strangely confident within himself. Um, he is a very. Oh, I'll say it. He's cool. So. He's my idol. I'd love to be him. Oh yeah. We're beating around the bush there, but we're like literally <laughs> describing Wiley e. Coyote. I mean, that's what he is. He's he's the confident loser who keeps <laughs> totally. like fucking up and like all of his traps blow up in his face. But he keeps trying and he looks cool while he's doing it and he thinks he's gonna get yeah. it this time and it just doesn't yeah. work out. He's gonna do it this time. <laughs> well, yeah. And Cage literally said that he modeled his mannerisms after Wiley e. Coyote. Like this was something that they actually discussed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and I love that Cage specifically. I think he I think he said this too that um his he would like flare his hair up like more wild as HI would be like in distress or like be like really like wigged out or something. <laughs> he would just make make himself look crazy. Yeah. It's such a good look. He he even starts to do like some really crazy physical transformations where he like especially near the end when he starts to get incredibly stressed and he's doing like the car chases and stuff, his eye like one of the his eyes starts to close and kind of twitch the whole time while his left eye just stays completely wide open like you know he's he's like on something or something like that he's just wired um it's a it's an incredible physical performance by cage in this he really just does kind of embrace the whole animated aspect of it all um, yeah, no, he gets into so much he, he gets into such antics. He's such a caricature in a way. But again, it takes his relationships kind of seriously. Like when he meets and falls in love with mm-hmm. with with Ed, played by by Holly Hunter, who's also amazing in the film. Um, she is the on site officer who's like there to just take his mug shots. And I laughed almost every single time that he got locked up and he had to run into her. He's like, oh, hey, Ed, like what's going on with you this time? And she's just like, my <laughs> my fiance like broke up with me. And she's like crying. <laughs> her eyes out he's just like well he's a fucking idiot you know (laughs) and and by the way what's a pretty thing like you called ed for you know there's just there's something immediately very 
just like dopey and lovable about the chemistry that they have together that I, I think that Holly Hunter at one point calls like a fool's paradise. And that just rang so mm-hmm. true to the way that they, you know, like they end up kind of interacting with each other throughout cages, you know, in and out routine through the prison system where he's like, you know, getting he's friends with like the janitor with the gross mop or the philosophizing bunk mate uh, where he's like listening to him while staring up at the texture of his mattress spring above him in his bunk bed. The Coens fucking love that POV shot of like from like a pathetic perspective or an undignified perspective of some kind. I was thinking about that under yeah. the, that dirty under the sink shot in Blood Simple while I was looking at uh him be like he's they're like what if imagine sitting in this horrible bed with this character for a moment yeah uh but 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 jamie's right like everyone has like a friendly vibe to it like this opening like what like 12 minute montage or so it's so dense with information and character detail uh but also like the 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 warmth of this community that are involved in this cycle it's such the opposite of (laughs) of straight time (laughs) where it's like you know like the impulse towards self-destruction of the is the same as Max Dembo's a little bit, but it just, it has so much silliness and kind of life to it. And the situations he finds himself in are not as like torturously self-destructive. It's like, Oh, he locked himself out of his car by accident mid robbery, like a fucking idiot. Um, (laughs) or, (laughs) you know, like that, 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 that's a lot of what we're kind of, uh, uh, seeing in the opening. I also, I also love the the details that he says about like it, it's it's a similar character in that he understands the system, but he does it in uh, like funnier ways. Like he's like, you can't call it armed robbery if the gun isn't like if I don't have any bullets, like that kind. Yeah, of Yeah, the thing. gun ain't loaded. <laughs> it's not armed like, robbery in Arizona, which that can't be yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but who knows? Like, maybe I, it yeah, is. I did not look that up. I was curious, <laughs> but uh, I just I love that he's like I found like every single loophole so that even if I'm in the system, I'm gonna be in and out very quickly. So um, it's I just I find it very funny that he strategizes his life that way. Uh, Like he's able to think ahead, but just not too far ahead. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, too, is just like how meticulously like uh, uh, thought out and 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 effective and quick this like 12 minutes goes by. Um, I'm in the middle of reading Mm. Barry Sonnenfeld's book that he uh, wrote recently. And um, at some point he wrote about, you know, like how storyboarded this movie was like they had every every single bit of it storyboarded because they had to have like a complete movie ready to have the financing you know everything was had to be locked in and it really feels that way watching that opening scene or the opening uh, sequence where it's just like one after the other and all these repeating shots too and and like it's so quick and and you can just get a laugh just from like one single frame and it goes by in like two seconds and it is like so good how how quickly this thing moves by the time the opening credits starts you're like oh my god I didn't even realize that like the opening credits haven't even started yet you know it it felt like a little mini movie in and of itself I really love this opening you know it's it it really moves by and um, Barry Sonnenfeld shots obviously obviously are uh, uh, beautiful great I, I love the camera movements and um, absolutely and and the, the, the framing and the colors it, it, it all it, it all works so well mm-hmm. yeah it yeah, reminded me like it's because this movie's 90 minutes long and it's it reminded me very similar it's just in the sense of how dense it still feels of like I am a fugitive from a chain gang which we just talked about same thing mm-hmm. it's just like they, they pack in a lot in this 90 minutes and a lot of this is uh just great gags and like great character moments. But um, 
a lot of the gags and the jokes themselves are built within the personalities of the characters, which I love, instead of just like having them say just a f- general funny line, like everything that you laugh at has to do with what you've learned previously about the character from like another scene. It's just really well written and, and even the jokes are just well thought out when it comes to who is delivering which gag and, and how they go about it. It's, it's very, very smart. Oh yeah, and su- and such good like yeah, like as as Wyatt was saying like again it's 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 such good visual control while densely packing mm-hmm. it with gags and character interactions and one of my favorite aspects of it was the uh, insanely exaggerated production design of the entire thing like it's so much of this <laughs> by Sonnenfeld is shot on wide angle lenses so you can see so much of these various rooms and sometimes just looking at the room that a character stays in you will be like oh I totally know who this fucking guy <laughs> is like when you have that fucking Nathan Arizona guy he's like look it is exactly 845 in the PM and I will be down at the store in exactly 12 hours to kick me some butt or my name ain't Nathan <laughs> Arizona and he is on like his lazy boy chair in an entire like leopard print living room like you need the, it's five seconds and it's an entire world you have imagined an entire movie with this man and you know this and that's something they've just always been so good at doing mm-hmm. but it's so important in a movie that is meant to be you know so like how f- fast and light on its feet as this is meant to be in the same way that these characters are kind of uncontrollable because even though it seems like you know when high gets out and he proposes to ed and they are a couple and it seems like everything kind of might be coming up their way obviously the big sort of wrench thrown into their lives is that ed uh, uh can't have children and uh the the way that fucking they write it is so horrible where he's just like you know she looked as fertile as the tennessee river but her insides were a rocky place where my seeds could find no purchase which is just definitely one of the meaner lines in the film that that you can tell has that cohen stamp on it um but the, but also it's it's a sense of like well the answer to that would be go and adopt a kid and that's where you get um you know he's an ex-con and that's where you get the sort of financial yeah. desperation in the class desperation of it too like it's a detail also raised in michael mann's thief there's a whole scene where james Conn's freaking out that he can't have a kid even though you know he's got a good job he's got money he's got you know he's got a a, a good partner like they could be good parents but yeah he's an ex-con so he just he doesn't deserve to be able to have that aspect of his life and these characters are also given that where they're like we are deemed unworthy of having the sort of life you are told to aspire to, especially in fucking 80s Reagan America. So they were like, fuck it, we're going to take it into our own hands. What's that? The Arizona Quins, the, the quintuplets are being reported on the news. And and also I like the detail yeah. that they only exist because the rich guy could afford the fertility drugs. So basically <laughs> he had childbirth on steroids, which popped five kids out. And they go, we're going to kidnap <laughs> yeah. one of those fucking babies from this regionally famous furniture salesman. <laughs> <laughs> which is they got such more, an they incredible got premise for a movie, I just have to say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the headlines even, like, we have more than we can handle, basically just, like, come steal. Yeah. <laughs> come steal yeah. one of these babies. I love also the gag. It's very uh, simple, but I found it to be really funny just in, like, the, the format of it when uh, 
uh, Nathan, Arizona. It's it's that same uh, shot that you were talking about, Josh, where it's just like him and his wife in the living room. It's the introduction to the rich family. And he's like uh, Arizona residents. And then it pops up on the font. And then I think he says the, the day and the date. And then that pops up on the font. He's like, it's 80, 80, uh, or 8.45 p.m. And in 12 hours, I'm going to go and kick your ass or whatever. And then 8.45 p.m. pops up. Like, it's just this yeah. kind of like... Uh, editing font gag <laughs> for no reason but i for some reason i got a kick out of that one too i thought it was funny no nah, man i i loved this like it, like it, it basically hits the ground running like once it finishes this opening bit where it establishes you know the history of these two characters you know what where they're thwarted what they're feeling what it is they're gonna do in order to you know actually achieve this sense of normalcy because both of these films are just about characters who are desperate to get the things that they are told they are supposed to have to live a normal domestic life right. and you know but these characters are willing to go to some in, insane extremes in order to pull it off including you know uh nick cage literally going in uh, breaking into the mansion going into the baby room where there's this giant oversized crib that basically looks like it's from a cartoon <laughs> involving a stork and insanity yeah. just ensues and never stops from this moment where he where they be, and and it's totally grounded in the like you know we thought it was unfair that some should have so many while others should have so few and you're like yeah you know it's a sentiment i kind of understand and then it's like you know, uh, now Nick Cage is sweating and wrestling like five babies, you know, and they're all trying to escape trying to this room. One. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's just it's so amazing that the Coens have just enough real ideas baked into this that they could make a more dramatic, meditative movie about class dynamics and the injustice of who can afford or have the opportunity to have the American like nuclear family and you know that these characters have been just deemed unworthy of and their vision of these real world anxieties and frustrations which we just talked about authentically realized and grounded in straight time are instead like a wily e. coyote dream world uh, <laughs> where there's low angle mm -hmm. shots of Nick Cage just sweating his ass off the ticking time clock ki kicking in floating tracking shots as babies are literally like jumping on him and like you know like it's turning into this like in entire like they're trying to escape their room every time he turns his back on them and he eventually gets one out or he he doesn't get one out and he's like the babies are too much like i can't handle that shit it was horrifying in there they were crying they were all over me and holly hunter's like of course they were crying they're fucking babies like go back in there and get me a fucking baby i'm not leaving until you bring me one back and you know it's just you know it, the whole chaos of where this movie goes from there is just you know it's it's breakneck yeah and there's so many like ways that they use the uh the camera in such a great way in this like i love the shot where it's down the hallway and cage is trying to like get like three babies that are crawling around and he gets it at the last minute before the wife makes an appearance in the shot like coming up from the stairs um and then there's another great one where he goes back and he's looking through the window and he's kind of got that same wide-eyed kind of wired look to him as he's trying to he's going back to get the 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 baby and the baby's getting bounced on uh his mother's shoulder and you get like a pov of the baby kind of like the camera shaking but you see cages <laughs> just really wired smile um yep. it's it's just so funny and fantastic and i, I also I love the 
the line that he says when he gets back and he's and he finally gets Nathan and he's just like, I think I got the best one. <laughs> yeah, it's I think like it's Nathan the Jr. Best out of the litter. <laughs> yeah. she, she, she's like, they're, they're she's so like, they're funny. all they're all beautiful. They're all good boys. He's like, yeah, but this, this what, is, what does he say? He's like, he's like looking at no, it. No, he's the best. He's, he's like, best. I think I got the best got one. The best yeah, one. yeah, because because she, because she's just like, <laughs> so oh, I love funny. him so much, but but won't like his mother like be upset? She's like, of course she will, but she's still you know even she still got four almost as good. Good ones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting too is they just a kind of comparing um, their interaction after they get him home, and it's right after this this scene. It's it's similar to what they were doing with uh, Willie and Kathy Bates's character in Straight Time, where Willie kind of has this like rough around the edges uh, parenting style, where Kathy wants him to live a, a you know a more normal up life in a more normal upbringing and there's but they do it of course in a more comedic sense where cage is like uh, look at him he's an outlaw a yeah, he's a little scandal he listen to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course ed uh, uh holly comes back with no he's a good boy he's he's perfectly well behaved and and this is what we're looking for that kind of thing and it's it's instantly kind of just a great way to show both of their perspectives on the whole thing like cage can't quite let go of his past but he still wants to hold on to this new found family i guess i and, do like um, that he takes the uh, so baby instruction book with him though which becomes a series of gags throughout yeah. the entire film where every single person who grabs the baby is like maybe i should also take the instruction manual <laughs> with the baby because <laughs> we have no idea what we're fucking doing yeah and then by the by it's the end great. of it it's like covered in blue paint as they as they bring it back it's yes. so good <laughs> Yeah, there's there's so many great gags throughout that, like that awkward family photo timing that they they pull off where Kay just tried to take a photo of them all together. And she Holly Hunter keeps trying to talk to him and messing it up or the insane one where John Goodman and Bill Forsyth as the uh, two friends of his from in prison uh, break out. But it's done in this sequence where they like birth themselves from the rain soaked like sewer mud and they're screaming like primal beasts while they're coming through it. It has to have inspired the fucking Shawshank redemption yeah and, and like what oh, what a totally. way which was so funny that that came after <laughs> what a way like they saw that they're like let's do the serious <laughs> version of that dude like what a way too for like john goodman to make his debut with the coen brothers like this like long and fruitful relationship that they've had throughout the years like him just like coming out of the mud screaming like a banshee <laughs> as he escapes prison is like so perfect i love it so much <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I, I like them and their thing. chemistry a lot because, I mean, we've talked about Bill Forsythe like a ton on this podcast. He is just he pops up in the periphery of so many films and he's just one of the best parts of any film. Like like the Steven Seagal film Out for Justice, uh, fucking Extreme oh, Prejudice, yeah. Stone Cold. Like he is, you know, even the Rob Zombie films that he's in, he is just like an absolute blast. And having him Maniac. and John Goodman <laughs> be High's like best friends in a way who are, you know, seeking seeking hospitality uh, which uh, Ed obviously isn't stoked about because they're trying to put this criminal kind of life behind them and now she's got like fucking John Goodman chugging Budweiser's <laughs> on her fucking couch and she's you know and she's like you know similarly to the Kathy Bates character she's like she's, they're going to influence him back to his to his his criminal life which he you know on some level kind of believes as well because Cage constantly throughout the film has this anxiety about his own like true nature and uh, that that he eventually has to kill by the end of the film which is 
manifest in this this uh, vision or dream of the dirty bearded lone biker of the apocalypse we were referring to earlier, the L- Leonard Smalls, which I do think in classic Cohen fashion uh, is a reference to John Steinbeck's like working class depression era novella of mice and men <laughs> about the displaced like migrant uh, uh, ranch workers. And I was like, yeah, what if that guy now looked like a cartoonishly dirty, hairy parody of like Sergio Leone or like a Mad Max character or something like that and cage describing him as like a man with all the powers of hell at his command he could turn the day into night and lay waste to everything and you know he was especially hard on little things the helpless gentle creatures as he's chucking a grenade at like a fucking bunny rabbit and just like ruling the arizona highway with this like scorched earth policy of uh you know that uh, you know he that cage fears is maybe maybe he's un- unleashed him the whatever this thing is maybe yeah. this is part of him in 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 some capacity his selfish destructive nature. Yeah, it does that like awesome point of view shot with um like it, it first it goes along the ride with this kind of like the this Leonard this rider and he's like I think we already mentioned it but he's like he shoots a lizard and then he shoots a bird or something and then he sets a dandelion on fire or something like that but yeah, then it turns and, into and, this and he awesome also just wants the baby too right like he he because there's a there's a yeah a, a reward on the baby that nathan arizona is putting out and i do think like one of the later scenes is like him coming in for the payday and be and nathan arizona being like i think you're an evil man and he's like if you don't pay my, like my price for your baby the black market will you know like that's that's essentially his function in the <laughs> yeah. story is to just break in through the walls and be like what's going on guys i'm gonna steal this fucking baby and i also love at the end of that scene or the i guess the dream sequence it kind of goes into his like mixing it in with with um with uh, herbert's guilt and and he's kind of like they have that awesome pov shot that goes from the rider but then it turns into like the camera goes over a car and then up a ladder into a window <laughs> and then it shows the mother realizing that one of the babies has been stolen so she screams and then he wakes up um, but the, just the camera work on it is awesome. It's almost it an evil dead shot, shot, right? Yeah. Speaking yeah. of, we were just yeah. talking about I was, that. I was yeah. say it's very Sam Raimi totally. of that time, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, you can tell that they were best friends I, I with Sam Raimi, cool. right? They were all, they were both inspiring each other. They were the, uh, I forget who it was. Was Sam Raimi was the one who gave them the idea to do the like mini trailer that they did for blood yes. simple that had Bruce Campbell in it. Right. Yeah. 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 So like you can tell that they were swapping notes a little bit and there's some camera. So there's some athletic camera movement in this by Sonnenfeld that was not in blood simple, which was, you know, a little bit more reserved, like had some great, camera work but like this is so animated and comedic in a way that definitely is more Raimi yeah and and that's that's one thing I I think um, I miss from some of the Coen Brothers comedies too I mean like I I just I don't know I I'm a big like uh I'm a big fan of uh Sonnenfeld's uh comedic visual style uh he's very like anti-panning the camera he wants everything to kind of be uh stationary and you he doesn't he doesn't think it's funny when you move the camera from you know left to right very much um and he uses these big you know wide angle lenses and the camera definitely feels like uh, you know a character in of itself you know within this context of the movie and um 
like it really feels like too that you know they they made Blood Simple they they got the movie that they were trying to get off the ground for a while and then they they actually got a chance to make like this like new thing and it's like okay well we have this chance let's just like go balls to the wall just in case like this doesn't work out or something you know let let's just like throw everything that we can at this and just like go crazy screwball comedy and I feel like like Barry Sonnenfeld cinematography really speaks to that where like everything is just like it's so fast paced it's so so off the wall crazy mm-hmm. in a way that yeah, the craning oh the my tracking God. it's yeah and, and it's just like every mugging so face that's good. like warped by the various angles that he's doing like the pov shots are so distorted and crooked in the way that some of the characters obviously are and the the colors are so vivid of the desert and the sky and yeah it's unbelievable one of my favorite uh kind of it's, I guess it's not an introduction because we did get that phone call with him while he's in his living room with his wife. But when he's starting to interact with the public because they realize that, um, that, the, that the baby's been stolen and, and uh, Mr. Arizona is, is, is taking these interviews and he says something like, uh, they're like, uh, who, like, which son was stolen? He's like, Nathan Jr., I think. <laughs> like He just has no fucking idea, really. It's almost like uh, he just views them as you know, his, his property rather than his, than his actual sons. He doesn't seem like to have much of a connection with them outside of the ownership of them. Um, they do a little bit of a change in his character by the end, I guess. But the, the cartoonishly uncaring father act that he does in the first half of the movie is very funny. I thought. Oh my god! Yeah, that, I mean, one of my favorite. Like, <laughs> I was gonna say one of my favorite aspects of this is that all of the visions of like what the normal families are supposed to be like are basically just as chaotic as they would be as parents. Which is like one of my, you know, it's it 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 really speaks to the point that they're trying to make is that these characters should be you know are worthy of the same lives that these other characters are who are able to afford it. Um, and, uh, right. one of the best examples of that is speaking of, again, the insane cast on this, uh, Sam McMurray and Francis McDormand yeah. show up and they have an insane fucking scene where they're playing oh Glenn, his foreman and, and his wife. And they are meant to be the more like respectable friends. They are social engagement set up by uh, Ed to be like, well, let's not hang out with your prison buddies. Let's hang out with these people. And if anything, they are more vulgar and chaotic than his ex-con buddies. Like his kids show up. They're destroying his car, <laughs> destroying his home, vandalizing everything, writing fart on the wall and breaking shit, just fucking shit up with sticks. At one point, Frances McDormand, and God bless her for how she's able to deliver stuff like this, but she, with complete sincerity, she's like, hey, she's take that so diaper funny. off your head and put it back on your sister. And, you know, we don't see that situation. It's <laughs> totally sold in just her delivery of that line. <laughs> Yeah, they they do the same thing with the father where um, you hear like a bunch of glass shatter and he's like, mind you don't cut yourself there, Mordecai. (laughs) It's one of the funniest side things ever to end the scene. I also love just how they introduce the entire family, which is they have the the sister and and the husband like show up and you can hear some like chaos in the background, but you don't quite see it yet. And then they just cut to all of the kids that there's like seven or eight of them and they're just smashing uh, (laughs) Herbert's car and that's all they're doing and they're not apologizing for it they're not noticing it they just could not give a fuck less about what their kids are doing but then simultaneously talking to uh ed and and herb as if like they should be listening to them and then um, did you get the dip together (laughs) 
Yeah. Did you get his yeah. iodine? What one of the great uh, oh, Im- improvised moments I think uh, was the, he did this during rehearsal and the Coens were like, "Don't do that again," but we'll use it. Was uh, when um, he's talking to Nicolas Cage and his kid's like writing "fart" on the wall. And he turns around and he has like some nuts in his hand and he throws the nuts at the kid. And he's like, "Hit the deck, boy!" And he like smashes against the wall. It was like one of the funniest things, dude. I, I I love that kid writing "fart" in the wall, dude. It cracks me up every fucking time. Yeah, it's like, why is he doing that, oh man? He's like, God. his writing's getting good, you know? And, 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 and you can tell immediately, like, the anxiety is like, oh, my God, this is what I have to be. This is what a normal fatherhood is like. Like, And, and, he, and Cage is, like, immediately, like, overwhelmed. He's talking about how suffocated he is to the point where he just punches his boss in the face. Now, there's a couple other reasons, too. It's also the awful, like, Polish jokes that he keeps telling over and over again and suggesting that they put, per, do a wife swap. He's like, this is not respectable right. at all. Like, I would rather, like, my, my I have better friends that I made going to prison every week than I do with, with, with these people. And, uh, you know, and, and so like this actually is what results in him reverting briefly back into his old life of, of crime because he's like, man, I don't think I want to be part of this decent folk thing. And when they're driving home that night, uh, by the way, one of my favorite details of this whole thing is that he robs convenience stores and the detail that's included in the script is that he's writing. He, he's, he robs convenience stores literally because it's convenient because it's on the way home. Like, he, you know, <laughs> and like, that's just <laughs> yeah. it. That's the only reason. That's the only thought process behind why convenience also- stores. I also love the, um, the the fact that when he goes into the store, he has this kind of initial physicality of him, like he's not going to rob the store because he's just grabbing like Huggies and underwear and and whatever else he needs for the family. And then just as he's like just casually walking with the huggies in hand, he puts down the pantyhose and he's like, let's fucking go. And I just, this is I, one the, of the my favorite sequences in the entire Cohen brothers career. I, I, I called this the 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 the, the huggies heist. Uh, this yeah. is just an incredible sequence where he walks up to the fucking the clerk and he's like, I'll be taking these huggies and whatever cash you got. And it just turns into one of the most crazy cartooned, like controlled chaos set pieces I've ever seen where the pimple faced brace face cashier whips out like a dirty, hairy magnum. The, the fucking cops come rolling up, flying over the fucking hills like they're in Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> A bunch of stray dogs and a truck driver get involved in this chase. It's so crazy energetic and the the cutting and the camera movement and the use of the wide angle lens tracking shots as they get into the various crashes. The fucking baby is doing mugging faces and like covering his eyes throughout this sequence. I was like flabbergasted by this. Like I, cause I, it had been quite a few years since I had seen this and I was going based off memory and I did not remember how fucking long this sequence is. Oh my God. Th- this, oh, yeah. this was a very and first there's, sequence. There's so many moving oh. parts. This was the very first sequence I have ever seen from this movie. I, my dad was like watching it one day when I was a kid and I walked past him and like, it was like the, the scene where Nicholas Cage is running through the supermarket and there's all these dogs chasing him and there's like guys shooting <laughs> like, shotguns and shooting <laughs> diapers and all these things. I'm like, I'm like, I, I have to see this movie, whatever this is. Like I need to see what the rest of this is about. And I, I, I don't, I don't know. From my point of view, I think this is like one of my favorite chase scenes in any movie I've ever seen. Like it is so good. I, I will go back and rewatch this scene again and again and again, just on its own. And, and Dude, Cage flying through the, the windshield suburbans. onto the lawn and being, and saying, thank you. 
one of the greatest like yeah. throwaway details of the, the whole the thing. Running through the living room while Nathan Arizona's commercial is playing and the family's just sitting there watching it. <laughs> like cops are going through the living room and there's like handheld shaky cam. It looks like you're actually watching cops. It's so good. It's crazy. <laughs> And then just to add the gag too that like there's an actual just a group of dogs that have been unleashed and they end up going through the open front door through the house as well. <laughs> and then it like ends up with the clerk that's been chasing them, the cops that's been chasing them, the dog, the old man that he's in the the, the truck <laughs> with. Um, I think the clerk gets tackled by the dog and then he eventually finds his wife and gets into the car with, with them and, and they escape from the cops. And the cop gets run the over scene, by a screaming woman with a grocery cart who is being chased by the dogs. One of the greatest right. things ever. And every woman in that supermarket has yeah. curlers in their hair for some reason. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's so cartoony. It's great. And he still gets the huggies, baby. They'll get some. That's right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, 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 and well, cause he's like, you know what? I, I need to do this. This is like part of who I am. And he, he you know, he, he even, he, he knows that, you know, Ed who uh, partially gets him involved in that set piece because she drives away with the baby and, you know, takes away his getaway car, which turns it into the crazy foot chase that it turns into. But he realizes that, you know, he can't, you know, put her through that. So he, I do like that. He leaves that note with her and he just delivers one of the, like, I'm go it's time to go back to the old me but in like the most like hick poetry note ever where he's just like you know i hope you both will understand that uh i've decided that i've that i've, I've got to do this i'm gonna be gone and uh, i can't be the man that you need me to be the husband the father that little nathan deserves you know my, my genes got screwed up and uh you know i don't have the strength of character to to raise a, f a family in a manner befitting a responsible adult and, you know, I'm going to go out, you know, back into the world. And I, I think he, he's even trying to be like fancy with it, too. He's like, I cannot tarry. Better I should go this evening yeah. and let you curse my name. Your loving Herbert. In a, in a movie like this, too, like I was fully expecting him to like pick up like a stick with a knapsack on the end of it and like walk out the door. <laughs> like it's like, yeah, so, so on the nose. it's going to go hobo mode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, it, it turns into like more <laughs> chaos where like Glenn, the foreman is trying to blackmail him over the baby. Once they find out who he is, Goodman and Forsyth overhear that blackmailing and then start being like, we're going to fucking take the baby, which turns into like this whole fucking sequence of Nicolas Cage riding John Goodman's back and POV shots of his like spinning legs being flung through his own walls and his like mobile home and everything. Just fucking wild. One of my favorite details of that entire fighting sequence is when Cage lifts his hands up to give him like a big pounding and he just scrapes his hands off the jagged edges of the ceiling because of that like weird drip dry yes. paint that some people have on their ceilings or whatever that that like small intricate detail made I just loved that <laughs> I just couldn't believe they thought of something <laughs> so specific it was it's no, great and, the, and I love the, the way it's incorporated yeah like that and just the level of minute construction is just so in, insane yeah. some of the editing choices when when Forsyth and Goodman drive away with the baby and they're like you know they're singing their nursery rhymes from the parenting book and they're driving away and you can hear them singing in the, the opposite car while Holly Hunter is approaching 
um, the home driving in the opposite direction. And you can see her going, oh my God, good riddance. These fucking ex-cons are finally out of my fucking home. Not realizing that what she just heard was them singing to the baby. And then insta cut to her sitting in shocked silence on the chair, presumably cage <laughs> ranting, just telling her what happened. And, and she's just like, you know, you were right, honey. You know, I got to be a responsible father now. I got to get Nathan Jr. back. And he's like recklessly waving like two pistols and a and shotgun around. Yeah, I've Let's go get Nathan Jr. (laughs) (laughs) And he, well, he's, he's fucking stoked. He's back in a situation where his old ways are even called for. He's like, we got to fucking do it, honey. Yeah. It's such a natural element. Like he's just, he's in it right now. He's like, I can finally be myself. And I love that. He's putting like five guns into his pants, like his waistband. It's just, it's absolutely hilarious. And he's, he's going, I love too, that it's a stationary camera. So you just see, Holly's like blank stare just on the wall and then Cage is going from left to right out of frame over and over again grabbing more and more weaponry it's just it's such a great gag and two awesome performances in that moment mm-hmm. and, and also the gag that like everyone who meets this baby just instantly falls in love with this baby because like so much of this second yeah, half is like included. Yeah, is 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 uh, Goodman and Forsyth just being like, oh man, we're, we're gonna call him Gale Junior. You know, he's he's our kid now, and you know, and I, at one point they talk about calling him like Her- Herbert Junior as well, and you know, no one can decide what to name him other than it's a, you know, it's a vision of their future, you know, and yeah. uh, and it, it turns into these hilarious moments where they get so distracted, like sticking up like a fucking gas station or whatever it is that they accidentally leave the baby on the hood of the car and drive off, which we find out in a sequence where like the baby's just not in the car anymore. And we have to remember where they left the baby during that chaotic sequence where they're pulling the robbery and the character, like we're putting it together at the same time as they're pulling it together. And the payoff is Bill Forsyth and John Goodman fucking wailing like large babies for like three straight yeah. minutes, like pounding the car, <laughs> turning it around, realizing that they maybe fucking killed the child when it flew off the top of the car while they were driving away. <laughs> it's so good. Cut to the baby just chilling and like smiling comfortably in his car seat in the in middle, the middle of, the of the highway, yeah. prepared Which, in a low angle shot yeah. where like any car is going to fucking turn him into a pile of meat, you know? And that, that great shot, <laughs> too. Which they do twice. Which was like, it was shot in reverse, too, of the car like coming at the baby and like this like high speed and just like skids its brakes and stops right before it hits the car seat like it, it's like right like on the edge yeah. it, it looks so I, scary when it comes for that fucking baby man i also love this like completely unnecessary gag but it just once again adds to the chaos and adds to the personality of everything where when Forsyth does the robbery and he's just like, okay, man, I want you to get down on the ground and I want you to count to 900 Mississippis. And when I, and, and I'm going to make sure that you do, cause I'm going to come back and make sure that you've done it, which is obviously just like an open threat or whatever. But because they forget the baby, they do come back and it cuts back to the clerk going like, uh, 891 Mississippi. Yeah, he's like, oh, this is fucking and bullshit. Then- <laughs> I'm not going to count anymore. And then he just hears them screaming and the car flying down the side of the highway. He's like, oh, shit, go back, back down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's just, it's, it's so silly. And it's so, it's like unnecessary, honestly. Like he's disconnected from everything else that's going on, but it's just another great well, gag in that context. I, I, and they're just, I love the, they're so good at it. I love it. the other old man too. He's like, you want me to get down or you want me to freeze? Which is it? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Until you get down and freeze. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, he's like, I, I, you know, if I I'm love... freezing, I can't rightly drop now. And if I drop, I'm going to be in motion. You see? He's like, shut up. <laughs> John Goodman's like wigging and out. And then when they're like starting... Yeah, and they're starting to panic, so John Goodman kind of loses sight of like what he would be seeing if he were to tell everyone to drop. So he's like, "Where the fuck are all the tellers?" And he starts to freak out about that. And fourth, they're like, "We're all down here, sir." They're behind the desk. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And then they start using each other's real names and start yelling at each other for that. It's just such a, just a terrible robbery. (laughs) And they forget the baby in the robbery sequence as well. Like this movie is like such a crazy. Farce of just like repeating images in in these way and and it's so funny because they're escaping and obviously they're escaping with the money and the blue dye pack explodes all over them and gets all over the book and over the fucking balloons that they were buying too. I did like that throwaway line where he was like the the balloons any funny shape balloons he's like nope unless round is funny. You know, because they were trying to get some balloons for the kids. They're like <laughs> I guess the, the babies like balloons, so you know whatever. Um, and just every single detail that they establish just keeps coming back into the set pieces because like when they go back for the baby in the middle of the road because he fell out of the car again you know the biker gets there first and it turns into this crazy bit of action where you know like the biker is grabbing the car seat with one arm off the middle of the highway and then spinning around and you know shooting the shotgun blast into their windshield with the other arm tossing the grenade into their car and having these crazy overhead like drop shots as Cage and Holly Hunter both run from the doors on on both sides like there's so much slapstick creativity to all of this that they they must have the craziest script supervisors in the world to be able to like maintain the level of detail yeah. of like she gets you know she gets nathan jr and she takes off through the bank and everyone is still lying in the same spots that they were when they were getting robbed and they're just like they're like hey everyone you know like welcome back into the bank and they literally some of the characters lying on the ground have to roll out of the way (laughs) of the motorcycle ripping through the fucking bank like it's just it's so crazy how just all of these elements keep stacking and building and just getting more ridiculous yeah, and even the the fight itself and the way that this this uh, this Leonard goes is completely over the top and crazy. Like this is just straight out of a uh, of like one of those um, action movies that we've watched with a giant rocket launcher, bad guy explosion at the end kind of thing. Um, which is just talking about like a Death Wish show. movie. I was like, what is that Death Wish four? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> dirty, yeah, dirty. Wish. One of the dirty I mean, Harrys. He does Death it too. Three and four. Like, oh sure yeah. <laughs> there's like two rocket launcher explosions in that series. Yeah. So yeah, Rambo two has it. I think like, it, um, and with this one, it's just like he he pulls the grenade as he as he pushes him away, and then he's. I love that uh, his character Herbert is so sweet still that he <laughs> looks at the guy and he's like. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you kind of feel sad about it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he's like, this was just kind of circumstantial. My bad, our bad, who knows? And <laughs> you know, that kind I, of thing. I want to put, I wanna, I wanna put this out there, too. If if anybody knows like how this shot was done, it, it's, it's bugged me ever since I've seen this movie. I can't figure out how the hell they did this. It was it was a shot where uh, the the biker throws the knife at, at Cage, and he's holding the wooden plank, and then the knife like hits it. 
And oh. I, for the life of me, I can't figure out how the fuck they did that. And it, it's bugged me ever since I've seen it. But it's it's such a good shot because he's he's far away, throws the thing. You see the blade come through, like close mm-hmm. to the camera. And so, like, I don't I don't know. I it's something that's I, I can't well, figure out if if any. I was trying to remember is it, is that the, is it with the wood or is it the gun in his it, hand it at was that the point? Wood. I remember. Yeah, he's holding the plank. It was the wood. Yeah, gotcha. And it goes because I was going to say because yeah. Because I remember he does that yes, as the reverse of what happens to him because he gets shot and the knife gets shot out of his hand or right. something like that, right? Yeah. And then with revenge, he's like, well, I'll knock your shit out of your hands with a fucking knife. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's the logic of this movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love the uh, the detail of after um, Leonard gets, like, he, he, you know, he gets blown up, basically. Oh, he um, gets blown to fucking see, like, bits. his leg fall off. <laughs> Oh yeah, you see his leg fall off or fall into the onto the road, and then you see a pair of like uh, baby motorcycle boots, which I I, I thought yes. was implying that he was going to take them off, and that's an actual father figure. Yeah, yeah he was, dude. He wanted I, to have I a fucking wanted... Leonard Smalls Jr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to see that like that spinoff where it's basically what was uh, Josh? Do you know the? Um, I can't think of it right now, but it's uh, they made a. Um, kind of an edited version of it. It was like Shogun Assassin, where the guy has, he's like the samurai that brings his son along to do all these like crazy violent. A lone wolf and uh, cub is what killings. you're thinking. Yeah, lone wolf and cub. Like, <laughs> I want that version, but with, with Leonard and the baby, man. That'd be so funny. Well, I mean, there is a version of that, right? Because high, like, the, the big sort of like sort of meaningful moment of all of this occurs, I think, when high is getting in like direct, close quarters contact with him in the fight and he like rips part of his uh you know his motorcycle suit off and he sees the woodpecker tattoo on him and you know he kind of confirms in yeah. some ways that you know this could be his future if his destructive ways and you know uh continuity didn't push his anxieties about settling down and fatherhood uh, aside and it, it is becomes a thing about like killing a part of himself and kind of being reborn a little bit, just done in the most like gruesome, explosive, like slapstick possible version of depicting a <laughs> cathartic identity crisis. Like yeah. That. But, it's, but like functionally, uh, it's almost the same ending as fight club when he fucking shoots himself, <laughs> you know, like, uh, like it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's, it's really this moment of this turning point of like, I need to, you know, there, this whirlwind of chaos. This is what it's like. If you, I was to do that for decades and I would also not be able to, get the fucking baby so you know they 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 choose the much cuter ending of you know they realize they're wrong they everyone gets fucking murdered basically and they return the kid to nathan (laughs) arizona and they and uh they do it and they admit what they what they did and he even sympathizes with them he doesn't call the cops on them he's actually quite understanding and encouraging he's just like you know what little i know about you two there must be some good in you and you know you two you know, maybe you are, uh, you know, because at that point they think that they're wrong for each other, that they just brought out their worst instincts and created this whole situation. And he goes, maybe you shouldn't get divorced because maybe you can't have a kid, but you, you know, you have each other, you know, you have something there. There's something yeah. to be had out of this, which leads into the big final monologue, which I actually thought was genuinely beautiful as like, just like a piece of writing. Mm-hmm. Like I, I thought this, this mm-hmm. monologue that cage gets, about this 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 uh, dream that he's having where it's no longer he's being terrorized by this monster that he's summoned that destroys everything good in the world it's you know all of a sudden it's him 
and you know gail and uh and uh evel have you know decided to return to prison by which they literally like go back into the hole that they were birthed out from which i thought was like a funny image to depict yeah. that and then the rest of the 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 dream is the like this yeah <laughs> yeah straight up and the rest of it is just like you know nathan jr on you know christmas morning and you know he's he's friends with you know all of these you know people still you know maybe even glenn threw in another stupid polack joke or whatever he's doing but it is this future of he gets to grow up and watch his kids and watch his grandkids and it's just this idea of you know me and ed maybe we could be good too you know there is a possibility of mm-hmm. that you know, happening and it, this dream seemed real to me and it, you know, this could be our home. And the, the, he ends it by saying like, if not Arizona, then a land not too far away, uh, where all parents are strong and wise and capable. It's almost like a fucking like children's fairy tale or something. And your children are happy yeah. and beloved. And, uh, maybe it was Utah because <laughs> they have to throw in like one little yeah, last little I'm- gag light in there. It's so nice. And we and I love the maybe it was Utah like there's this almost fate to it where it's like well maybe if I just if I get here then I can get my dream um, I, I just I I love that kind of. Uh, optimism that he has at the end yeah it's great and the uh i don't know if we mentioned it but the great carter burwell score that goes along with this ending sequence oh but God. also throughout the yes. movie too i mean the the goddamn yodeling <laughs> and everything that goes with the it, yodeling so good. yes <laughs> the the banjoing the whistling yep. oh my god they're so yeah like and, and such a pivot from the fucking dark synths and like mournful pianos of uh, blood simple as well like everyone was firing on like yeah. a, we're gonna do something fucking crazy different and uh they all nailed it yeah yeah having the yodeling while you're going through that sequence of him you know go, uh stealing the huggies and then going yes. into the old man's truck and being called so by the cops good. and the clerk is going after him and the dogs like it's just it adds so much to the to well to the vibe of course you got that southern vibe but even the comedy a little bit because it is kind of a at least in this context a really silly thing to listen to so um yeah the, the score in this is is awesome as well hell yeah Hell yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that is going to wrap it up for uh, uh, Raising Arizona. So we should go into the reductive rating round as, as well. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit struggling on this one. I might let you guys go first. Okay. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right in there with uh, like a, it's another strong four, honestly. I don't know if this would ever get to the, uh, the masterpiece status, but I will say that it'll be something I watch all the time. Like it's just, it's, I love how lighthearted it is. I love how like strangely optimistic it is, especially coming from the Coens and to see them do something like this, to have a little bit more positivity, but still have all of their, their uh, like incredible kinetic gags and, and their, their pacing and their timing of things is just unbelievable. Um, like I said earlier, I love that all of the comedy is built within the characters. Most of the time that are just some like really good action sequences he does as well. But um, like that, that, that scene, uh, where Holly is just blankly staring as, as Cage just goes on about trying to be a better man, but loading five guns at the same time and putting them in his waistband. It's just, it's hilarious. And it's just such a good understanding of the character and also the tone that he's, they're trying to strike. And, um, I, I'd like to see them. I mean, I guess they're not, I guess they decided not to work with each other. Yeah. I'd like to see them make anything together again, but yeah, I, it would be nice to see them come back to this a little bit too. Alone. 
I guess this was Joel alone. They, they, they were all credited as Joel as alone, yeah. even though they basically yeah. weren't. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, what was what, what was the first I, I one where they seeing... co-credited? I can't even think. Uh, is it uh, like Lebowski or our brother? Suit? Maybe one of those. I, I want to say it was no, later on. It might have been yeah, around the. Oh, it I might guess. have been our brother. I can't remember. Oh my god! Yeah, no, not even oh brother. I'm trying to find where's the first one where they were both credited. Oh my god, where is it? Oh my god, Jesus. Is yeah, it, that's it's wild. it. Oh my god, it might be no country. Was it no country? Really? That's that's fucked up. That if so, that's no. But they've but but the, they basically right, said that well, they've been directing everything together since even when Joel was uh, solo credited. Yeah. yeah, I could imagine like them having such an understanding of the script. It's it it'd be hard to to think that Ethan wasn't just like in the background going, yeah, but we should do this, we should do that. So totally. Yeah. Um, so Ethan is not credited I, if, on anything from it. the eighties and nineties. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah, that's that is wild. Um, I I really didn't know that. Um, but yeah, I would, I wouldn't mind seeing them go into a, like just another one last kind of lighthearted romp. Cause this was just, it's a blast. And I guess it kind of has it with the big Lebowski, I would say. Um, even though that also has a lot of tragic characters by the end of it as well. Um, but, any, but anyway, yeah, I think that this is just absolutely hilarious. Uh, Nick Cage and Holly Hunter are amazing. Another like great supportive cast as well, like Forsyth and Goodman, uh, their their kind of like cartoonish stupidity is very very funny, especially when they start going on actual uh, robberies, um, and just to see them being able to to understand like action and uh, comedy at the same time earlier on in their career like this. This was their second movie, right? This second after movie, yeah. Simple. Yep. So it's just, I mean, they've been so talented for so long; it's unbelievable. Yeah, kind of fucked um, yeah, up. Yeah, this, this is great. So strong. We said that about Blood Simple yeah, too. A little we're bit. like, fuck you guys. <laughs> like a debut movie should yeah, how look do you, or sound how do you, like How this. is this your debut? And then you yeah. follow up with this. And it's like a completely fucking different asshole. tone. Yeah. Like, it, they're just, they're masters. <laughs> yeah, they're so fucking good. So four out of five for now. We'll see maybe one day. But it's, I mean, it's, I couldn't recommend it enough. Hell yeah. Um, I, well, this is a, a pretty easy five out of five for me. Um, I, it's hard for me to separate my feelings from it because it was such an informative movie when I was, when I was young. Um, but even rewatching it this week, I'm like, no, this, that's solidified for me. Like, this is like one of the, my favorite movies ever. <laughs> like, it's like, so like perfect. There's nothing I would change about it. Um, I, I love the, the sympathetic kind of take that the Coens have on these characters. I, I like that there's a, an earnestness to it that's really funny um <clears throat> i i am so obsessed with the the looney tunes gags and camera movements and uh crazy phonetic energy of the entire thing um i i love the uh the setting for god's sake i mean i was i was born and raised in arizona small town hick arizona so like like a lot of this i'm like oh my god it's, it's like i know these people a lot of them you know um and uh it's i i think it's it's up there is like one of my favorite Nicolas Cage performances. Um, I, I think Holly mm-hmm. Hunter plays off of him really well. She's so goddamn funny in this movie. Um, and I just, I think it's, it was such a, like a, a, crazy change of pace from what they did with blood symbol too. And it was such a bold move to like go from something as bleak and, yeah. and dark as blood simple was into something as 
completely like off the wall and funny and crazy as this one it, basically you know showing people that we can do both of these things and they kept doing that throughout yeah. their entire career that we you know we can do yeah well because then it was right back into miller's <laughs> yeah, crossing which miller's was fucking crossing. harrowing yeah, yeah. yeah so it's like back and forth back and forth but um it was so smart of them not to get pigeonholed into you know we only do these types of movies and um it, it's a great representation of yeah. like you know what they would do in the future and everything too I, but i i just think it's solid all around and it's such an impressive second movie to make it it's it, it, it definitely makes me jealous of like how good it is and how well it holds up. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think this is perfect. So this is definitely a, a five, five out of five for me. Damn. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to go uh, with what I did on blood simple, which was, I went with the Jamie four, which is like the classic four that yeah. has been constituted as like the, the one, like, where, you know, you're maybe like a smidge away, but you feel like another watch and it'll get there. That's what it feels like for me. I felt that way about Blood Simple, too, because I've, I've had the, and I, it happened to Fargo, mm-hmm. too. Fargo was a movie for the longest time where yep. I was kind of like not my favorite <laughs> Coen Brothers movie, but like really, really good. And then I saw it on a 35 millimeter print like two years ago and I went, fucking idiot. That's one of the greatest <laughs> movies that's ever been made. And so, like, I have this feeling with all of their movies in a way where I just feel like, is that really one of their best ones? But it, it's also an issue where, like, if this was made by anybody else and it was like you know it would it would be their masterpiece yeah. you know like this is only a jamie four in the oh, context right. of the coen brothers is the thing for me and because it, yeah for <laughs> right. all the reasons we've already said where it's like like incredible mix of screwball comedy crime movie western movie road movie like straight up looney tune cartoon shit this movie i do think it does differentiate itself uh you know because i don't buy into the idea overall that the coens like hate all of their characters or anything but this one definitely has more empathy and more affection than some uh some of the other films you could you could say despite the fact that they are zany and immature and uncivil and literally baby kidnappers (laughs) like these were characters you feel like if there was a people you (laughs) would make fun of or be cruel to this might be the kinds of ones you are and the fact that they they found the genuine heartache of these characters and the desperations that that motivate them just makes it even funnier when these sweet characters end up orchestrating this like gleeful surreal violent destruction all because they just they want to have something normal that they have been you know told that you know they they are unworthy of and they think that's unfair and i think that they feel that pain for them in in that way but yeah cage holly hunter both incredible the wily coyote energy that cage brings to that fucking character who is just it's so up to speed with exactly what sonnenfeld and the coens are doing with the distorted athletic camera movement that turned arizona into a playground the slapstick insanity of of all of it is just like really un- unbelievable and yeah how it all circles back into this vision of like here's these vulgar rambunctious characters living in a fool's paradise and you know what if they tried to be good what if they tried to be better what if they you know what if they you know could actually pull it off and i think that that's such like a nice sentiment to organize an otherwise breathless like energetic caper around it it's it's just it's very charming it's very farcical and genuinely sweet despite the fact that people probably i think people at the time did accuse it of being like a exploitation movie by like condescending guys who aren't from arizona you know and but like that isn't really not how it plays to me uh at at Mm -hmm. all so yeah i really loved this movie no 
I even think it's funny that their optimism goes over to the gag of like the the rich vapid guy is the one that gives the them their like heartfelt moral lesson at the end in a sense like you still it's have true. each other yeah. don't worry about it yeah I man he, that he doesn't even really he, they gag. don't even bring themselves to hate the guy who is like a regional furniture salesman, like a symbol of Southern 80s Reagan capitalism. And they can't even yeah. bring themselves to be like, this guy deserves to be fucking blown up. The only thing that deserves to be blown up <laughs> is like the a literal dream vision of like evil destruction. <laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> the Satan yeah. himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think so that is going to... Wrap it up for Raising Arizona and for this week's episode. So uh, that was uh, Straight Time from 1978 and Raising Arizona from 1987. Thanks so much, uh, Wyatt, for uh, joining us and for finally coming on the show and bringing these films with you. Thank you, guys. I, I appreciate yeah. it. And um, I, I'm just happy to spread the good word about these amazing movies. So I, I, I genuinely hope more people will, uh, check out Straight Time from listening to this podcast because it, it is very underlooked underappreciated yeah if you've uh, got anything to plug while you're here this is usually uh where we have people do that even if it's just uh just the twitter or anything yeah uh yeah you can follow at wyatt duncan on twitter um i'm always posting bullshit uh, uh just stupid idiot uh stupid bullshit you know whatever it's just all <laughs> dumb but it's uh, uh you can follow me there and um uh, you can watch Oppenheimer in uh, theaters next month. Uh, Dude, look at him. He's on the press tour <laughs> promoing Oppenheimer. I, listen, Let's go. I, I don't, I'm not saying I'm getting paid for the more people who go see this movie, but um, you should go check it out just to go see my big screen debut. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's... it's, it's going to be a star, We, we spent uh, <laughs> several months in the New Mexico desert last year making that film, and uh, it was quite the special experience for me, so I I'm very excited just to see it. I, I just I can't wait to check it out. And I know there's some good shit in there that people are really going to be talking about. So uh, go go check it out. Hell yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, for our for our listeners, we are going to be back in one week's time where, as Jamie alluded to earlier in the episode, we are going to be going adventure movie mode because there is despite all odds, a new Indiana Jones movie on the way. And somehow we have never talked about uh, uh, any of the Indiana Jones films. So we're going to be talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And uh, we we thought about being boring and just being like, well, let's also do Temple of Doom because that makes sense. And we like Temple of Doom and it's worth talking about. But uh, we did want to pick something uh, maybe a little bit, uh, let you know, a little bit more off kilter than that in terms of double features. So we are actually going to be also talking about, I believe, Robert Zemeckis for the first time as well. We're going to be talking about Romancing the Stone with Michael Douglas alongside Raiders. And I haven't seen that one since I was a kid. I hardly remember it. So uh, I'm, I'm definitely uh, excited to go back to that. So that's what we're going to be doing next week over on the Patreon exclusively. And then in two weeks time, huge pivot. Uh, we have a uh, special guest uh, uh, coming back and bringing uh, with her some uh, 90s like scream knockoff horror, some Kevin Williamson mm. PG teen bullshit. We're going to be talking about I Know What You Did Last Summer which is actually something that <laughs> nice. Jamie and I are familiar with. Because did, did we talk about the sequel or did we talk? We, we talked about it on a podcast. I thought I we talked what. about... I thought we talked about it on uh, Mike McCabe's podcast. Yeah, do you know what? We well, might have done briefly. that. We might like, have... I, I, we didn't focus like we probably would have on this show, but we definitely... Uh, 
chat. So here we go. It. We're going to watch I Know What You Did Last Summer for podcast duty again. And we're going to be pairing it with a little film that I know that Jamie is not fond of, Urban Legend. And I am really <laughs> excited to see what happens. This because Jamie, from what I remember, he absolutely hates this movie. And it, this might be one of the <laughs> first what? Jamie ones on the show. We will find oh out. I, 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 that. I vaguely remember it from my childhood a little bit, but like that's that's about it. I remember it looking kind of low rent, even by I'm a teenager who loves scream standards being like, I don't know if that one's for me. Oh my God. Um, Am I about to be really mean on the show? I hope well, not. we're going to find out. I'm very curious about it. So that's what you can expect <laughs> in two weeks time. Is Jamie going to hand out a one on the show? If so, it's rare. Um, so holy shit has that I don't know if that has happened yet besides yeah. like outside of a bonus transmission yeah I am not sure so we we will see but yeah that's what you can expect in two weeks time and yeah thanks so much uh, for listening as always and keep it sleazy keep it sleazy everybody